welcome back to This Is Hardcore Podcast. Really happy to have Rich Hall on the show today. He is a promoter that really stands out as someone who doesn't just buy four bands and puts an opener on them. And is more of a show curator with a certain style and flair. And really changed the way shows were starting to be booked in New York City at the end of the 90s and into the early 2000s. As we'll talk about in the episode, he has also have a flair for being the Winston Wolf. For those of you who have ever seen Pulp Fiction, you understand that reference. Of hardcore festivals. And someone who you can always count on to come in, give the extra hand, see the project through, handle the dirty work, and make sure the whole thing ends up nice and clean. Rich would later go on to help This Is Hardcore, and to this day, he's someone that I've always turned to and asked for the who, the where, the hows of getting some of these crazy bands back on the stage again. And his story is amazing, just like the other guys. And he touches on quite a few things that are starting to become a common thread within our other guests. And it fits very well with what we've done. And I think you guys are really going to get a kick out of some of the stories. And especially for those who have been there at some of these shows or at that time. And we even get into some of the failings of the 2004 and 2005 Hellfest. And I'll let Rich tell the rest of the story. Just thank you for continuing to support us. And once again, here we roll. Before we get into hearing Rich and his lovely voice, Rich, you were introduced as the Winston Wolf of hardcore, a la Pulp Fiction. And Who said this? <laughs> me, in the intro. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and I, I can't find another reference or another person who has come in in dire times and when shit hits the fan and just makes shit happen. And <laughs> that's the basis of this conversation and obviously the origin story for you. But I, I didn't want you to get to the point where you're listening to this and you're like, you called me Winston Wolf. So that- I, did, I dig it. No, I dig it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I know that you're a Yankees fan, and that was completely because of your father. What what was your family's uh, home like in regards to the kind of music he exposed you to? Well, it wasn't really my dad because my dad worked two jobs. I didn't really see him a lot. Uh, and it, I was pretty much raised by my uncle, and he loved every type of music. He had the best record collection just the weirdest things. He would have like Polka, Greatest Hits, and The Beatles, and Santana, and Johnny Cash, and like just all this all this music, all these different realms and stuff. And like, it's just, Sundays, like, you know, we didn't have, we weren't that rich or whatever. So like, we listened to the radio and whatever, Hot 97 at the time. It was like, you know, breakbeat, house music at the time. And then like, Z100 and like the top, you know, top 100 songs at the time. We just had music in our house all, all day. You know, we didn't have cable, you know, we couldn't afford cable, couldn't really afford anything, you know, and just had music and had our family. We just had fun with it. And then, you know, like I got older, I just feel like my tastes broadened a little bit, you know, like I was, I was into everything, but like heavy music was like, that was it. I was like, wow. 
Um, and that was my cousin. And my cousin was like into like DRI and anthrax and all that kind of stuff. And he skateboarded and I didn't skateboard. I skateboarded once. I fell, broke my kneecap in half. And then I'm like, I'm done. And then um, we just listened to metal records in his basement, you know, played G.I. Joe like kids do, you know, 12, 13 year olds do. And I think my, I had an open mind like very early on. What's interesting is you're not the only person that has brought up albums and records. I have to ask the question is because especially as a younger person, it's always the art that draws in someone to explore the music. Can you think of one record cover that like you saw and you had to listen to just because of the record that your uncles had? Santana. Santana, uh, I forget which one, but they're all, all the covers are like ill and psychedelic and stuff. And, being an eight-year-old kid into like bright Marvel comics and DC comics and just comics is like, what's this all about? Let's put this on and hear like, you know, Santana just wailing on guitar. I'm like, oh, this is cool. You know, like, okay. Like, what's this one? You know, I'm like, it'll be some weird German Reinhouse type music. Just like, but the cover's cool. But, you know, it was, it looked old fashioned. I'm like, okay, let's check it out. You know? Uh, <laughs> so, the question, the, Go ahead. The, the question that comes to mind is because you brought this up just there. Do you feel like at the time when you were exploring music that your art interest began or did that begin sooner than the music came into play? Art was always there in the first place. Um, I, would, I wouldn't do homework. I wouldn't do schoolwork. I would just doodle, draw comics our superheroes that's it that's all i would do like i would get so much trouble all the time just in class just drawing 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 fuck fuck what you're saying i don't care I'm drawing this captain america like it's coming out cool you know so like leave me alone so uh but yeah but music was i think music was more of a a background thing it wasn't major it was just it was just always there it was just always there in my life it just wasn't I guess it was prominent, but like the two didn't really mix until I guess eight years ago, nine years ago. So um, it was always separate, and I and I kind of like I, I talked to, about this with someone else uh, recently, and it was like one of my biggest regret was to continue my artwork while I was into music. I kind of like was so full on with art, and then I got discouraged going to art college in the city just because it wasn't what I wanted and then music came into my life and I went with that full bore until I wasn't <laughs> involved I I didn't want let me I, I, I slowed myself down actually let me down. uh yeah. let me let me walk us into this because I I really one of the things that has been always interesting about you is that you are very much a comic book hero but also has a taste of the villainy in that your eye is always on what's going on. Even if your hand isn't in, but you're definitely still aware. And yeah. I can remember times when you've called me and been like, I don't know if you know, but this is what I've heard. Mm -hmm. That's like total comic book villain keeping their finger on the thing. So I like to walk us into this. So you're, you're 12 and 13, you're into DRI, you're not skateboarding. Where was your art at that stage? Were you still competently drawing or was it just fuck around and fuck everybody? Or did you actually get any kind of like a 
tutelage or like classes at that point? Um, so at that point it was like seventh eighth grade and I was just still drawing comics on my own and like painting and like whatever. <clears throat> and then like, you know, like in eighth grade, like where are you going to go? Where are you going to go to high school? And like, you know, it was a big deal in New York city. If you went to a specialized high school at that time. And I was like, yeah, what's out there? You know, and my guidance counselor told me about high school of art and design. And um, that was, I think, going to the city by myself, Every that was the, the major change in my life. But, uh, but it was still comics. It wasn't like, it was still fuck everyone else, but still doing comics and stuff and doing what I wanted and like making my own characters and plots and everything. And uh, my cousin was, is a writer and like he wrote some stories and we like made some DIY comics and stuff and had fun. And just at that point, you know, I was like, I'm ready to go to art school and like become a comic book artist. And I did. I went to art and design and four years they were like, you need to do this full time. You got it. And I'm like, okay. So I went to school of visual arts and the way it's, kind of like shaped up there like you go your freshman year you do your basic foundation stuff you do painting oil painting acrylic painting sculpture all your like art history classes just to get out of the way so the next years you can you know pursue what you want um so got that done it was cool sophomore year uh so let me let me sorry let me walk that back um I always had an affinity to like Vertigo Comics, which is like a subsidiary of DC, which was like the weird stories, Sandman and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of like artists back then were started integrating uh, computers and stuff. And I was like, I want to do that. I want to do that somehow. I don't know. I want to do that. But I would do it analog and just try to like do what I want. Just, you know, like you know, like uh handmade, you know. So, but a lot of my teachers were like, you can't do that. That's, that's, that's not going to sell, you know, oh no, because everyone was so like old school, golden age comics probably started at Marvel when it's, you know, like kicked off in the sixties or whatever. Um, just still like, oh, you can't do that new shit. You know, like you got to learn the classics. And I'm like, Fuck. <laughs> you know, like, okay, you know, um, and I had some great teachers, but at that point, so like, at that point, I could start going to shows. When you think about, and when you really take a second, because I know, uh, again, we're talking about origin stories here. Mm-hmm. How do you think you first came across, whether it was a flyer or a tape or a person that got you into the door of your first show? Uh, it was high school. Um, just knowing the bands, kind of like reading the magazines and seeing what shirts they had and like, oh my God. And then going down to East Village, that was the big thing in high school. Like, well, when I was a sophomore and like, <clears throat> get these cool, like, what's this? This is a seven inch. And there was, oh yeah, my uncle has one of these, you know, like I'll get one. And like, you need to get, hear this band. And I think around like junior year, I had some classes with uh, Orlando from Stillsuit, and he was like, oh, dude, you're into this band? Because I would buy the shirt, and like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I love the music, but you should come to a show. 
And I'm like, I don't know if I'm allowed to, but okay, I'll try. So yeah, Orlando from Stillsuit, kind of like, you should come down the Bond Street and stuff. I didn't go. I was too scared um, going down there like at night, you know, and stuff. Uh, from, from where I lived in Queens, it was, it was a track on the train and I didn't think I would have been allowed, but, um, and then he was like, oh, why don't you show up? Like, oh, I made you a tape and all this and stuff. And like, I found out about more bands and then I was, I wasn't really sucked in until like before I went to college. Yeah. Before I like around like early 94. Like late '93, I would you know like first quicksand was out. Like oh, I had the the burn seven inch because that was the shit. You know that, that's what it's kind of like. Oh my god, this is my music. Um, and then I think in college I was in the city a lot more, and I was allowed to hang out more and be out more. Uh, I would go down to the village, you know, after a late class, and then go stick around, see what's at the Continental or like whatever. Back then I wasn't allowed to go to CDs. My dad was like, never allowed to come down here. Um, I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. Okay, sure. You know how funny that turned out. But yes, I mean, (laughs) it's definitely a harbinger of the kind of, Hey, fuck you. I'll do what I want. That is total rich hall. That's basically, yeah. (laughs) So when do you transition specifically from being, the art kid who goes to some shows to even thinking about being involved in the back end of booking shows. Like how did, how did the thought process begin and where was your first like social interaction that put you on the path to that? So like, uh, I think around like freshman year of college, you know, um, we would just go to every show. Me and my cousin, you know, he had a car. Like, oh, let's go to Jersey. Let's go here. Let's do this. Let's go to this show out in Long Island. Let's go here. And we were just so sucked in, you know. But I was still, like, focused on school. But I always always had a thought, like, how does this – how do they put this together? You know, like, what's the back end? You know, like, what's behind the curtain? And, you know, it was just, like – it was a mystery to me up until Warp Tour, 95. This is this is the moment, and I'm gonna name name drop right here. Uh, Tyler King was handing out flyers, and I remember the show. It was H2O, Dare to Defy, uh, Sheer Terror, and like uh, Fury Five at CB's or somewhere. And he was handing these, and the, the flyer was neon green, and it was just a little handbell, and he was just handing out flyers in the middle of Warp Tour, and I'm like. Hey man, do you need help? You know, like he's like, yeah, sure. Like here, take a bunch. And me and my cousin just went around, covered a lot of the Nassau Coliseum parking lot, and uh, we were done. We were like, found Tyler again. He was like, oh, can I get some? Can we get some more? And he was like, wait, you were just here like thirty minutes ago. And I'm like, yeah. And we handed them all out, and uh, he's like, yeah, here, man. He's like, oh, do you want to come to the show? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And I was like, kind of like, it was like, cool. Like I got listed, you know, or something, you know, like, oh my God, you know. Like, do you remember that was, show that he listed you for? I don't remember the show. You just went in at this point, but 
it was a Sunday afternoon gig. That's all I remember. And like, kind of like back then, you know, back then shows were still kind of like getting known again for the matinees because of the, because of 93 or like 92, 93 when it clo- closed for matinees or wasn't allowed to have them. And, you know, it was just a show in the summer, you know, like barely anyone there. It was cool. Got to see like the bands and then, you know, go outside, hang out, you know, watch everyone drink 40s and let's like stay, stay in your lane, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like when you're a youngin at a, at a hardcore show, like, and like you just stay in your lane, you know, and then cool. And then like, at the end, I was like, oh, what? Like, do you have any more flyers for shows? Like, I go to school here in the city at SVA. I can, like, put some on bulletin boards, like, in, in the lunchroom and all that. He was like, yeah, man. And, like, this was, like, a month or two. I kept doing it for him. And then he was just like, hey, do you want to work here? I was like, okay. <laughs> sure. What do you want me to do? He's like, just stand at the back door and don't let anyone out. I'm like, okay. Just, just so we're both on the same page, you're talking about CBGBs. I'm talking about CBGBs, yeah. So, Sorry. Your father, yeah. no, 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 no. It actually, oh. it's great. Your father says, I don't want you there. And here you are. I'm at the back door. the back door. Can you Try tell can you back not to go back there? Well, that's, that's what right. I was going to get, exactly what I was going to yeah. get to. Can you, for the person who cannot even fathom and just saw pictures or maybe a video on YouTube, can you explain just how crazy asking you, a, what were you, a, a college freshman? To I was 19. Watch, yeah, you're 19, and you're watching the back CBGB's door. Explain a little bit about that, because it is insane to think that that was your first job there. So basically, like, there was no cell phones at the time. I would just sit back there and make sure, like, Saab and, like, Jorge and like Isaac and Freddie and all those dudes like just didn't go in the back and smoke weed and stuff and and they're like and they're like you new here and I'm like yeah <laughs> like all right man I, you got it man no worries and like they wouldn't do it and like okay <laughs> you know like uh <laughs> like what am I gonna do you know like so like they were cool the fir- at the first time that kind of happened with with them um and, you know they came there I was working every. I was working pretty much every weekend there and every day there for the last, you know, at that point until 2006. So you just, it was cool. You know, like it was just like, okay. When <laughs> you did know? you get your first chance to like have either your own bill or like input on a bill? Um, Around like, probably around 97 because I was so into everything at that point i bought everything i would be at generation records and spend all my money there just like come home with seven inches all the bands who'd play just buy merch from them all just like i was just inhaling hardcore at that point because there was it was just so much at the time well at least what what tyler booked at cbs in the wetlands you know i was so exposed to it and then going out to long island and seeing other shows i was just like yeah and then, you know, I would just get to know, like, oh, man, you should check out this band, Tyler. Like, have you heard this band? And you'd be like, no. Like, oh, I think they're touring. You should, like, put them on a bill. And you're like, okay. And then, like, you know, the first show I got to run by myself through Tyler was Ignite, Cast Iron Hike, and Weston, the tour at Wetlands. And the show was packed. And, like, 
it was just like, I was just so scared of my mind that they weren't going to do, <laughs> they weren't going to like make the guarantee. Cause like at that point he would like, I, I knew like what to do and like, Oh, this band gets this guarantee. And like, this is a guarantee, you know, and all this, and this is how it rolls. And I'm like, okay. And I was a little kind of like, I don't want to say strict, but I just didn't know what I was like, well, Tyler said, I'm sorry, Tyler said, I was working for Tyler, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and everyone's like, yeah, whatever, dude, <laughs> yeah, shut up, <laughs> you know. So at, at this stage, Tyler has king size booking and he's yeah. doing a couple venues. I'm, I'm not totally sure, but I was in attendance at the Agnostic Front reunions. Was he the promoter for that show at the Wetlands or is that just that's gone so. through them? I, I know that remember. I have a retarded collection of king size booking flyers and things that I've always spoke on is that you played a significant role in sometimes adding these lower bands on his bills to just diversify it. And, and you've seen it now with me and Bob Wilson, how that also comes into play. How do you think it was being a younger guy trying to influence the next generation in New York hardcore with these bands that just like maybe not initially filled the bill. And is there any memorable flyers and shows that you can be like, Oh yeah, I put this band on the bill and it totally threw a curveball in what the billing was supposed to be. Um, Fall Silent played this band from Reno. If no one knows, uh, they're on revelation right now, uh, played a show at Marauder and, it was the it was perfect because Fall Silence is thrash band, Marauder's Marauder, and like Jorge flipped out when he heard it. I'm like, oh my god, dude, this band's awesome! <laughs> I was like, all right, cool, you know, not that we needed to <laughs> give you're okay, but okay. Um, and uh, I don't think I had a lock on it, but he would be like, hey, check this band out. I'm thinking about putting them on. And I'll give him the okay. I wouldn't be like, you need to put this band on. Um, I, I, at the, so at this point, 96, 97, I was, doing, I was doing shows and helping a collective in Long Island. So basically that was my minor leagues. I was in AAA on Friday nights. And I got to help run the show. Run the show at, at the time. I worked the door. Um, I had inputs on bands and stuff like that. Um, so basically all the bands I wanted to try out for Tyler, I would put them in Long Island first. Was that then, at the PWAC or one of them other venues? It was at Deja One. Okay. Okay. And, uh, so Fridays I would go out to Mineola on the train. It was close, it was close to my house on Long Island Railroad. Um, and then Saturday I would either go to, be in Philly, you know, at Stalag or the church. Or I would be in, at the Melody Bar in New Brunswick. And then Sunday I would be at CD's. So that's how much in, into hardcore I was, you know. And then, uh, but yeah, with like, you know, going back to the question, like I would try them out in Long Island. And be like, oh, Tyler, this band's hot. You know, this band's awesome. Okay, cool. I'll, I'll check them out. And he'd be like, okay, yeah, he'll put them on. Or like we would work it where like they played Long Island Friday, they played Jersey Saturday, and then they played CDs Sunday. Um, so we worked in that kind of like 
methodology as well, kind of like scheduling this band from Colorado or whatever, you know? Um, so, yeah, but like, there's not really that many bands like, yeah, I put that band on, you know, oh yeah, yeah, that's my, that's my band. Tyler doesn't know shit about that band. Because we're just so into it with each other. We're just like, well, I think you should put this band if they contact you and they like would or like, hey, check out this demo. They just contact me for a show in three weeks or whatever, you know? And like, I'm like, okay, cool. You know, give my feedback. Like, oh, the band sucks. Fuck them. You know? <laughs> Let them play Poughkeepsie or something. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so at that stage, some of the more new metal bands were starting to do support slots on smaller tours. And were they coming through any of your guys' venues? Um. That was just a regular show. So like Machine Head, that was just a regular show that Tyler did. It wasn't like we threw on some Roadrunner signee on a show. Um, that was always separate. It wasn't infiltrating anything as far as bills, like mixed bills or anything at that point. Um, that was definitely a separate thing at CB's. Uh, until later, until I kind of started booking a little bit later on, 98, 99, 2000. Then, you know, I did a show for Mastodon and that band 5.0, which was a new metal kind of SOU, pirate radio, um, band would be on the bill. Like, oh, okay, cool. Whatever. <laughs> you know, like, I only got to pay him a hundred bucks and then there's going to be like a, like a 70 person guest list. All right. I don't give a fuck. You know, as long as they pay that, give me that check, <laughs> you know, like, so I don't care. At this stage, we're not at the internet yet. And oh, no. so where does your art influence come into flyers at all? And were you finding it easy because shows were getting better in New York to bring people out from Jersey and Long Island and was promotion for New York shows getting easier at that time? Um, my art was gone at that point. Okay, you were I mean, just you just turned it totally off. I turned it off. Okay. Um, I would I would, I did like you know four or five flyers for Tyler. You know, draw him up right there. He's like, I need a, I need a flyer right now, Rich. Like, okay, <laughs> you know, and then head off to Kinko's. You know, um, but. I, Personally, my art was like totally turned off. I was full on 1,000 knives around 98, 99, like full on. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, I still like comics. I still like artwork and graffiti and all that kind of stuff. But me doing anything like that, there was not a, a paintbrush or anything near me. So like it was just full on unbooking shows for a living. So and working at CDs. Do you think so. the art that was around New York hardcore between the graffiti and some of the comic-driven flyers was mm. still interesting and unique, or did you kind of just get blended out and was more worried about the back end of running the show and such? I was more in the graphic design when it came to flyers in a way, computer-driven flyers, let's say. Okay. Um, <laughs> Computer-made flyers, you know, like I went, you know, I was still going to school and I, had a Macintosh at my disposal. I can kind of like go <laughs> do Photoshop. Kind of. I was taking like intro to the graphic design at that point around 98. Um, but yeah, like, I, I mean, 
all my friends I hung out with in Queens, they still did graffiti. So it was still, I was still like, it was still exposed to it, but I wasn't applying it to anything I was doing. I was like, had a, like a very, cause that was like more of like the Hydrahead years and stuff. So everything was anatomic, like out of like Grey's Anatomy and stuff like that, like a cut eye or something, medical, you know, illustrations and stuff. Um, that's what I that, was, uh, that's what I was alluding to because yeah. you're a New York hardcore person, but you are embedded in a metallic new hardcore world where it's like quasi Geiger artwork. Yeah. And industrial, super industrial, like Nine Inch Nails meets Geiger meets like proto goth artwork in a lot of cases and yet you're still rocking a yankees cap and hanging out with graffiti writers and do you feel like the influences of your early metal past kind of drove you more towards the hydra head and the trust kill bands of that time i think when i i think liking i think liking faith no more like that's one of my favorite bands in the first like ever that was the shift, you know, like, yeah, Metallica's cool and all, I'll hang out with some bangers and all that, but like, I love me some Mike Patton and shit, you know? Um, so like my taste in, my taste in hardcore kind of was kind of like, it was steered into like the more like ABC Norio, Born Against, you know, No Escape. Cause it was just like heavier. It was just like, I want to say doomier, but like at that point, you didn't hear anything like no escape and like Tim screaming like like he does and like whoa and like whoa, look at this dude shocking. He's like flipping out like that. That's that's all in itself, you know. Like, and I think like, but I do. I, I mean, I still love the Twenty Five to Life, Mad Ball, Everyone Gets Hurt kind of stuff. The China symbol. Like, yeah, okay. It gets me back in there, you know? Um, that's when the Yankee hat goes sideways. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, so, like, um, it was, but I just felt like, like what you said, the art, the art aspect got me into, like, the different scenes. Like, oh, what's this about? Oh, this band Isis. This is pretty cool. The art's pretty cool. Oh, Converge has branded itself at this point into what it is. Like, wow, this is great execution and stuff. It was like I was pretty much gauging bands on on how they presented themselves, you know, like as a full CD package as an art piece. And uh, I think that's what, like, whoa, okay, what's this band all about? Like, okay, cool, cool packaging. Like, okay, cool, you tour, you... You don't care if you don't get paid. Like, okay, come through, <laughs> open up the slot, uh, have it, you know, two weeks or three weeks, you know? Um, and that's where my, like, like, you know, like it just steered over to like that Hydrahead stuff. And there was just more presented because yeah, cool. Dude with big sneakers and a spray can and a backwards hat and this bubble letters. I can't really, figure out has a demo like okay <laughs> like cool <laughs> you know it was just kind of like running the mill at that point it just didn't really excite me you know visually so it kind of like 
yeah, maybe like I missed out on a couple of bands that I was supposed to like be into or booked or like I just overlooked and like they went somewhere else and got bigger and like, oh, that's cool. You know, <laughs> like I, but it wasn't just my thing at the time. So, so one of the things that you have a great like point of view on is the rise of New York hardcore to be at the time when Roadrunner was influenced and obviously engaged with Madball and Shelter. But mm-hmm. then you were still down at the Melody Bar for some of these small shows where some of these bands were just completely unknown in New York City. And then also on the island with such a diverse thing. And then you mentioned ABC No Rio. What do you think drew you, and then obviously in Philadelphia and West Philadelphia, what do you think drew you to more than just stick to what one set of people are involved in? Where was, what was the influence that like had you driving all over for like basically separate flavors of hardcore, so to speak? I think it was just a part of the adventure. Like I want to go to Philly today. You want to go to Philly today to see the show? Cool. And it was just like, yeah, we'll go to Wawa or get some cheesesteaks, see the show, like travel back. We don't, we don't know what we're going to get into afterwards. You know, like it was just part of the adventure. Like, why not? Oh, cool. I saw a new band. Like, why don't you play New York? You know, like it was kind of like, um, I was always working and I was, I was always working and I was always playing and I mixed the two, maybe a little too much at some point, but. At that point, I was just like, always like, yeah, let's go. Why not? Who's going to drive me? Like, chill. Let's do this. Here's gas money. Let's go. I'll pay for your, like, you know, your mission. Or we can go check out this cool band. And, you know, like my friend who would be there or my cousin. And the excitement would be like, oh, man, I love that other band. Like, I love this band, you know? Like, so it was, it was just good to have fun like that. Just to, just be, eat, eat and be merry. But with like eating music so like it was just i was just addicted to it just because i was always i was always i always had that spectrum of music at home i always like there wasn't really one genre my uncle listened to it or my dad listened to or my mom or my sister you know it was just like it was just all over the place i just loved it and i could do this for a living and like this is cool cool you know let's let's do as much as we can let's let's get into some of that real quick so at this stage in music there were minimal to some corporate influences in booking and i kind of wanted you to give us like a timestamp view of the difference between booking shows and curating lineups and being just flat out talent buyers and where your operations with Tyler kind of sat, like what side of it were and kind of explain how you went through that process. Um, I think with Tyler, he always kind of had it ready to go. And he just needed that one or two bands to complete the thing. And I'm like, Oh, check out this bit. Oh, check out that bit. And then we'll close the book on that show make it happen and it would be good. Um, myself, like curating is a good word to use it. Cause I just wanted to make, sometimes 
again, just being bored about something like over and over again. Yeah, I can book six Madball bands. It's not going to be a good. Sh- it'll be a, it'll be a good show, but it's it's the same show. So why not have, you know, a show with let's say, let's say Poison the Well, Mortar AD, From Over the Ashes, Harkonnen. Like no one knew about Harkonnen back then until I brought them to New York City, and they sold out their all their merch at that one show. Um, let's say like Golden Sky. It was always my favorite to throw on a bill. And they would always be down to come up to hang out and play a show. Um, uh, and then, you know, like I would hear like two weeks later from like a dude like, Oh, dude, that, ba- that band with has got it open. Like, awesome. I bought all their, I bought all their merch. And I'm like, okay, cool. He, I, I made a fan. I made a, I made another fan for my friends. Um, so, it, so it sounds like a lot of what you guys were booking out of was less formalized and from a networking of, bands that were coming through and maybe a small tangent of booking agents at that point? Is that how you guys were getting your shows? Um, yeah, I mean, we dealt a lot with Finberg at the time for the bigger shows. It's always sucked um, dealing with him. Um, <laughs> um, Stormy and uh, Margie would never book a show with us, with, with Tyler, so like they would always do Cornell High or Wetlands Direct, which is fine. That's cool. Um, I would. I feel like Tyler would just like, "Hey, you want to do a show? Let's do it." Okay. <laughs> it just it just happened, you know. Like, you know, maybe just Bay Ridge Talent was the only one we kind of had to deal with um, at that time, and then maybe Digger um, for like some like the like the black metal bands but at that point yeah there was this it was kind of slim picket oh of course tim bohr you know here and there whatever show uh would come through that he would book he would go through tyler i think did you, you know did you see anybody at that stage trying to from outside the scene buy tours or packages and try to like act the way live nation would act now and like pick up the bigger things as they draw or was it still mostly a diy landscape it was still DIY, definitely. You know, when um, Tim was working at Rave Booking, you know, like, Tyler gave me, like, oh, read these contracts over for me. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, like, okay. And, like, that was a big deal. Like, oh, wow, Bloodlet, today's the day, and Hatebreed have this tour coming through. That's crazy. You've got to read this contract. <laughs> you know, like, that was always a weird big deal, reading the contract, making sure we had everything going to the store, Tyler, uh, picking up a writer, you know, um, <laughs> uh, doing security for geezer Butler, you know, like mo- now I've done it twice in my life, which is also odd. Um, hanging out with, yeah, I don't know. I did. It was definitely DIY. It was definitely like, there was no runners. We were the runners. <laughs> I was the runner sometimes, you know. Um, yeah, I mean that's that's how it is. And for me, when I took over, well, I, I, I yeah, I took over. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Tyler. I no. took over. <laughs> no, I, at some point, <laughs> at some point, I plan to speak to him and just. Like I said, some of his flyers are just like still like ingrained in my head. Yeah. From being a teenager. But I, I guess for me, 
speaking to you at this point, where were you alongside some of the East Coast promoters? Like, obviously, I know you have a relationship with Red Cheeks. And since a lot of this stuff was DIY, was there any kind of, like, informal networking amongst the East Coast promoters when bands were just, like, coming through from out of town? Yeah, Red Cheeks, Agnew. Um, who's a not really well not really anyone in Boston because I never really knew anyone in Boston who did the show it's just it was just the Middle East at that point upstairs and downstairs I feel like so they were they were they were booked by pros at there um, I, I believe at that time um, it would just be word of mouth it would just be a letter in the mail or a phone call to my telephone line. Hey, I need a show, <laughs> you know? Were you sure. pro enough to not be using dialers at this point? Or were you still on the dialer system? No, I never had a dialer in my life. I never had a dialer were, in my... You New York guys were balling then. <laughs> Yo, we were always balling, dog. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> Chris, um, Wren, Chris Wren in our last episode broke down the importance of dialer. And so I, I didn't know because of your connection with Robbie Redchiefs if you were on the, the nah. hardcore dialer plan. Nope. I was on the AT&T plan, had the business line, the office line, I used to call it. It was basically my phone in my room. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Or my house phone and my uncle or my mom would pick up and she'd be like, it's this person from ISIS. Can you call them back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, or like whoever, you know. So no, I've been there. I've been there. Many yeah. people call my mother and my mom would be like, Hey, this band guy called back. And yeah. I'd be like, well, which band guy? I, I don't fucking know. And I'm like, well, that's great. Um, well, yeah. Hilly's daughter, Lisa would call me all the time and would talk to my uncle and she would like flirt my uncle and my uncle would be like, get the fuck out of here. I don't care about you. Like you want my nephew to play like to work. Like, okay, <laughs> get off the phone. <laughs> so, so, so yeah. zoom out. We'll zoom out for a second. And uh, sure. for those who may not understand really some of what was going on at this era, there were some violent issues and ended New York hardcore batonies and Tyler and the Surger Madball and the return of New York hardcore is really when this era that we're speaking of begins. And then unless I'm mistaken, the way I always saw it was that as the 90s turns into the 2000s, obviously the bands went from being the VODs and the Madballs and such into, and you brought them up previously, like Converge became a bigger player, obviously American Nightmare. And there were other bands that were coming into the landscape. How do you think the resident New York hardcore people would react when they would show up to CBGBs and it wouldn't be the average New York hardcore fair at one of your shows? Oh, they hated me for it. I'm not going to mince words. They hate, they hate me for it. Hated me, hate me still. I don't know. And that was the thing too, what you brought up. What was the reason why, you know, CB's closed in the first place? The fights, you know, and all this. And at that point, Tyler was gone and he was cool with all those dudes. Like, well, that, that was that generation, sheer terror generation of bands played for Tyler and stuff, right? Um, when Crowbags came through, they always booked it themselves. Mabel did the show. All right, you do it yourself. I'm not getting involved in that, you know, because I know for a fact they will up that guarantee up another 10 grand when they're not doing that show. So, like, 
all right, just ask Brendan for the book. What, what, when do you need it? And they're like, Rich, you want to do the show? I'm like, nope, because I know I'm going to get that phone call from Brady Madball. Like, yo, you owe me this. I'm like, oh, God damn it. You know, it's that extra fee, you know? Um, so, like, I was like, nope. But, like, let's say, like, the Castle Heights scene. And that's specifically what I'm talking about. Like, I... I, I, if I, if I didn't work at CBGBs, I would have booked more of that, that kind of stuff. But if I did, and there was a fight, which there was always a fight when that did happen, those bands did happen to play, I would have been fired like six times and never worked there again or never been allowed to do shows. So I protected that's, my own ass. That's kind of where I was getting at. So you're in a precarious scenario where you're still trying to keep hardcore alive. In no, CBGBs. Well, I mean, I mean <laughs> yeah. in the sense, in the sense that our culture has shows. Whether it was you were right, trying to book right. Massive Penalty, you were trying to book ISIS, you were still actively engaged in the in the culture aspect. And having been at that age and being one of those kind of like goony asshole moshers, I it, it takes being forty now to look back and go, man, we were really shitting on people like you who were just trying to keep the doors of places like this open. Right. Is that, Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, I was saying, is that something that really led you to slowly stave away and get into the like, golden size and the from Adam to ashes and that kind of stuff? Is that really like one of the key points to where you shifted your booking and where you were focused? Well, basically, well, it, it didn't work because Mike Ski got stabbed at TV's. You know what I mean? The nicest human alive. The nicest human alive. I love Mike Ski. Shout out to Mike Ski in True Hand Society in Philly. Uh, um, but you know what I mean? Like it was going to happen eventually. You know what I mean? If it was going to be Billy Club Sandwich or Five Minute Major, whatever bands played CDs, then, you know, once, and I knew you were going to ask this question. I was thinking about it too. Um, um, so yeah, once, once it happened at a, on earth, you know, Nora show and my ski got stabbed. So I'm like, what the fuck? Then what do I should have been booking these bands in the first place, you know, anyway. But again, I would have been out of the booking game a lot sooner than I would have been after. Well, at least, you know, with my ski, like the Mike Ski incident, I was there. We handle it. We worked, worked it out together. But if, you know, I guess three or four fights at a show would equal to a Mike Ski incident and I would have been gone. So, like, I was just trying to keep my job. I was just trying to keep the peace. I was just, again, keeping the doors open, you know? So, and, I got, and I got flack for it. I still get flack for it, you know? At this stage, because this is your job, is college even in the picture or are you completely abandoned ship? I graduated. All right, so, you graduate, <laughs> so you graduated whilst all this was going on. And then because yeah. music was your focus, you just didn't follow up with the art yet. Yep. And, you know, like, my mom didn't care. You know, like, all right, you graduated, you know? And you have a job. <laughs> and you're like, that's it. I'm cool with you. You make your own money. You're not bothering me for money. And, like, you've got a good-ass job. And it pays you okay. You know, like, okay. You know, I know that you're safe or, you know, or at the club. I know where you are, you know, at night. I can reach you. I'm, I'm cool. All right. You know, it was just more for me, the art stuff. It was my passion. 
Um, but I found a different passion. And again, like I told you before, I regret I should have did both, but I just, I was so involved in the scene that I was every minute was dedicated to the scene. You know, even just, just, you know, being on every show that I didn't book, you know, doing that weekend warrior thing, like, okay, I'll see you, I'll see you Sunday at CB's, you know? Um, but, but yeah, going back to like the whole like violence at club thing in mid, you know, like late nineties into the two thousands, I just didn't want it at that point, you know? And then I definitely got shunned for it. Like I went to Castle Heights for a candy show and all I got was stared at. And I know like, I'm like, okay, I better leave because I don't want to fight. I hate fighting, you know, <laughs> like some of these dudes are my friends, but I know I'm going to get like, if I dance to Kandiri or something, I'm going to get one in the back, you know? So I'm like, I'm out. I don't, I don't want, I don't want to start any trouble. So I, I knew my place. So I, I, I left. And, you know, like Kevin Scandato hates my guts because of it. Cause I never booked any of the Castle Heights bands, but he had his own venue. So I don't know what the problem was, you know, like they all played there. Everyone showed up there all the time. You know, it was, I didn't, I didn't, you know, like, oh no, you're booking these bands. You can't book New York. I'm like, I didn't, I, didn't, I don't think like that. <laughs> so, um, what? so yeah. As a perspective from someone who would travel up for so many different kind of shows, the interesting thing is that you were always there in some capacity. And, but too busy usually to talk because like all showrunners, there's always something in the mix, something to do. And I have to wonder if there was ever a moment where you were looking for something that was beyond just the CBGBs and the wetland shows, or were you never thinking of like a professional production job at this point? There wasn't really any out there, you know, like, you had Roseland and you had Hammerstein Ballroom at that point, I think. All the other bigger venues were closing or just about to open around that time. Um, I always had jobs, always had like careers affiliated with music and still did CDs and still did shows. So I would work triple overtime at this point. Um, like 2001 to 2003. I worked for a radio promotion company and I, it was like, I did radio. I made sure these major label bands got played. Slayer records got played on college stations and stuff like that. Um, when I want to well, ask you about that. Cause I brought up college radio previously on an episode. Um, can you kind of get into detail? Like what PR was like pre-internet at, at, at the college radio station level? Then I had a list of like 80 phone call uh, phone numbers, right? And I just call them up. Hey, dude, what's going on? Sal from KZBZ. You know, like, what's going on? Like, oh, you playing my records, all this? Oh, what do you need? What do you need for me to get this record play? Oh, you need a signed Zach Wild beer can? Sure, no problem. I can make that happen. I just need to see it. Next report. Click. Hey, what's up? Alan from KBZA. You know, like, why isn't this record playing? Can you, like, bump me up a couple of spins, you know? What do you need from me? Boom, click. 
you know, it was just, it was just a list of here's your radio stations. And then like, it was an Excel sheet. You know, like, yep, call them this week. Yep, they're going to play this. Go down the list. And that was my day. And, you know, it was, I mean, there was email. There was kind of websites at that point. But, like, it wasn't like, oh, I can call people on my phone and try to get them to play things. I had to be in the office and do it. So I got yelled at once because I had Hate Breed Perseverance record release show at CBGB's. And I had to be there a little bit early. And now, at this point, I'm double dipping, you know, because I'm the radio rep for the Hatebreed record. <laughs> and I'm the promoter for the Hatebreed show. And what do I do here? So I left. I went right to CDs, right? You know, show great. You know, label people. What's up, dude? Good to see you. Great. Smoke a joint with the president of Universal, you know, at the sound booth watching Hatebreed, which is the wildest thing ever. Uh and I got yelled at from my boss, like, why'd you leave early? I'm like, well, <laughs> you know, like, I had this show because we were presenting this. You know, I was presenting this. We both were presenting this. I, I chose this. He's like, well, you shouldn't have. And I'm like, well, talk to the president of Universal and see if he's going to give us all the, all the heavy records for nothing. He's like, what? You know, like, to call him up and like, you did good, you know? So like... I don't know. <laughs> you know, it was just it was just who you knew and like how how you greased the palm. Like, oh cool. This dude from Elgin, Illinois, like has a college radio station, like, you need a signed Slayer LP? There you go. Now play my records for three months. Like he would so like that's how you that's how you did it back then, pre internet, pre you know, like internet what we know as as it is today. So where does the beginning of your friendship and working relationship with Keith and Hell begin? So so 2000 when Hellfest was canceled, I was on my way up there and we just turned back. <laughs> you know, we just went right home. Like, okay, cool. I had a cell phone at the time, I believe. Or the friend I was with. And like, alright, see you later. We're in Pennsylvania. We're close to home. Just turned right around. Um... 2001, I went up there and I had a couple of bands. I had, I was like, yeah, I'll go, go for the weekend. Why not? It was just another adventure in my life. And, you know, got hooked up and all this, whatever. You know, it was like probably like four touring bands playing that Sunday. Um, and then, you know, I just knew Keith. You just know people. You don't really get really introduced to someone, you know? Um, and he's like, oh, hey, dude. I'm gonna go, hey, he was like, do you need help? You know, like, oh, can we, can we use your help? We need security on the stage. And I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, why not? You know? And I would just make sure like stage divers, basically all my friends in the crowd from all over, just, you know, stage dive them, push them off, whatever. Like, okay, cool. This is fun. You know, then he's like, oh, can you help us stage manage these bands? I'm like, sure. You know, like, why not? I got a watch on, <laughs> you know, like I could do this. There's a clock on the, soundboard uh and it just became like you know like oh so next year can you do this and i'm like well yeah of course but you know you got paid <laughs> you know he's like yeah yeah no problem keith and hell was just like yeah sky's the limit for you and all this i'm like okay we'll see uh i can only say that now um but like he, he was always super loyal 
you know, like he knew not, I believe he knew not to cross me because I would, I would end him. Not just physically, just like, I, mean, I, I believe at that point, you know, I'd be like, you know, fuck this dude. And people were like, okay, <laughs> you know, and it was like, Syracuse would never get shows, only go, <laughs> go do shows through like Ryan Hex. But at that, you I mean, know, uh, but, let me lay the, let me lay the landscape out on this one. So sure. Keith and hell was in some bands. He is most notable for being the promoter behind Hellfest in Syracuse, New York. Yes. And between 98, 99, they were a smaller thing, but obviously growing because of the kind of bands they had. Syracuse Fest. Yeah, it's exactly. It was called Syracuse Fest and it, it, it kind of shifted to become Hellfest. And the Saturday or the Sunday, Starkweather was playing. They only got to play four songs. And that was the shame. end. Of, and that was the end of Hellfest 2000. And so, 2001, unless I'm mistaken, was that the first big year, like, the outside shit happened? No. That was still inside. All right. So, so that was – so then, all right, so, all right, 2001 was out inside, and then – so the date was – was it 2002 to 2000 yep. and – all right, so Three. 2002 and 2003 was a massive outside crazy in-situation. And – It was at the it, fairgrounds upstate. Yeah, so – so Rich Hall, as his background <laughs> states, starting out being a backdoor guy for CBGBs. Backdoor and, guy. <laughs> yeah, the backdoor guy. <laughs> yeah. Take that as you wish. Um, sure. <laughs> is being leveled into a position to not only stage manage, but were you involved in talent buying for 2001 or 2002 Hellfest? Or were you just showing up day of and being like, what do you need me to do at this point? Uh, 2002, I probably had, would have had some like, oh, this band's touring and they're playing CDs that Sunday, put them on the fest. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I would have some influence. I wouldn't be like, yo, this is my fest, you know? Um, you know, Matt Dunn would like book. There was a lot of people who helped book. You know, it was a big, well, at that point, it wasn't the monster it became, but at that point, like, you know, I would still have like, influence and like hey can you help this band out they're touring you know i got them on the show already in new york they just want want to play first you know and keith would hook it up and like they would play first and get like 100 bucks or whatever it is and then cool you know no worries um i kind of stay i, I kind of just showed up and i'm like i just knew my job i just knew what i had to do and like i'll just do it just and I'm in charge up there, and that's it, <laughs> you know? And, like, Keith would be like, Rich is in charge, <laughs> you know? So, like, he would just, like... Because Keith would be just all busy in the office or just being on rollerblades or something weird or being Keith, and, like, he would not be found. People just come to me because I'll give them a straight answer or an answer, <laughs> you know, at that point. Let's uh, um, let's dig deeper into that. So... Sure. And, and and because I was an attendee on like a single day here, a single day there, I don't think I attended more than one single day of Hellfest until 2003, and then we did 2004. Right. But uh, which was the first year that you had to deal with the pitchforks and everybody upset because money was not where it needed to be? And you always tell me the stories, and I'm always like, God, I'd love to get this on a podcast. So here's here's 
a rich hall showing up and basically putting out massive fires at one of the biggest festivals at the time in hardcore history. All right. I'll give you a fire. I'll give you a fire. I'll give you one fire. Um, because I never really dealt with the money. I never dealt with any money, any guarantees. I was just always like, Oh, see you later. <laughs> you know, you deal with it. Bye. Where's my money first. And then, okay, you got to deal with whatever. Um, there's that super villain part again coming yeah. through. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, where were we? Totally spaced. Like blacked out being a super villain. Oh yeah, the fire. Um, so it was 2002, and Thursday was headlining, and Thursday at that point was huge, 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 huge. And I was running stage on the main stage. And they were like, we're not playing. And I'm like, why not? I'm like, I think Tim is talking to Matt Dunn. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, and this is like, they're probably like 15 minutes over at this point. I'm like, all right, I'm going to the office and see what's going on. And I walk in and it's Tim Bohr just yelling at people. What the fuck is Rich Hall doing here? Like, he's supposed to, like, help you guys with this? I don't think so. And I'm like, what's going on? Apparently, uh, they were supposed to count all the walk-up tickets for, oh, you're here for Thursday. Okay, cool. And they were supposed to give the receipts to Tim before Thursday played. They didn't do that. So, like, all that, that whole contract was out the window. So Tim was like, you better give me, you better get me some extra money. They're not playing. I don't give a fuck about your fest. God bless. And this is like Tim anger management year. Like he was just trying not like to be angry and Tim and like, <laughs> and it was just like, and like Thursday's manager, Dave Ciencio, my, one of my good friends is there. And I was just like, I guess you got to get him his money. And I just like walked out. And then I just got the okay on the radio. Like, okay, they're all, they, they can play. <laughs> that was it. So I was like, okay, cool. You're on. Let's go. Everything's okay. So what's great really about that answer is that I have a scheduled time to deal with Tim in yeah. the coming weeks. And I cannot wait to say that to him. <laughs> it's going to be great. Please, um, please ask him about Hellfest and Thursday. And I, what it happened. is, it is absolutely going to be brought up. So <laughs> here, here is you out in Syracuse, New York, and yet you're still involved. Are you still totally based in CBs, or were you stretching to other venues at this point? Uh, CBs. That's it. Wetlands was gone. Colneen was gone. CBs is it. That was it. Uh, yeah, around that. Uh, North 6 in Brooklyn. It was it was a cool spot at that point. It's now the music hall of Williamsburg. But uh it would be like I could put Curse there and play the basement for five bucks. It was kinda like the ABC Norio for Brooklyn at that point. Um so I kinda like, you know, I wasn't living out in Brooklyn at that point, but like I could do a show here maybe, you know, if I talked to the right people because I would I was only Queens, Manhattan, that's it. I didn't go to Brooklyn yet. Wasn't allowed to go to Brooklyn, my dad said. It. <laughs> Marcy Avenue? No, you can't get off the train here. You got to keep going. You got to stay on the train. Yes, dad, no problem. Well, you know that I moved there years later. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a pattern with whatever he tells you. And 
I, I like that. So I mean, it's consistent. For, trust me. Well, so we're into 2003, and again, at this point, hardcore from what you started at and 2003, what hardcore was, was such a vast difference. And were you not seeing the same older New York hardcore guys? Or at that stage, those shows were uh, few and far between in the CB's venue. Well, in 2003, I moved to California um, for a little bit. Um, I got a, a job offer at a record label I would not disclose, and that never panned it out. And I got a job at Century Media working the Abacus label. So I was booking shows from California and still still doing CDs. Yeah, I was still, still doing CDs and working for Century Media. Who uh, was, who was making sure the day-to-day stuff happened? Like who was there settling and doing everything while you were booking in California? Brendan. Okay. I trusted Brendan, the door guy. Uh, Brendan from SSA, he was, yeah. you know, at that point we were buds. I was like, you know, I always, you know, I moved back, you know, the story goes, I moved back. And again, why, my dad, why should you move to California? You have everything here. I'm like, well, I want more. Like, you're not moving. And of course, I, he didn't talk to me as I boarded the plane to California. Uh, so again, what was your consistent. responsibilities? What were your responsibilities at Abacus Records? And how did you actually land that job? Uh, so a couple of years before I was out in California just hanging out and I was with, uh, our mutual friend, Ryan Downey, and he actually had an interview to, you know, be the A&R at that point. It was like 2001. Yeah. I was like, Oh, she's like, what are you doing? Rich, you want to take a ride? And I got this job interview and I knew everyone at the label at that point anyway. And I was like, cool, you know? And he was just like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do it. And I'm like, oh, that's cool, whatever. And years later passed. And um, so when I didn't get the job, the label I was supposed to work at, I an email came through, and it was one of the A&Rs I was close friends with was having a going away party. I'm like, I could do that job. Which is confidence, you know, I, I could totally do that job. If not, I can get a job at this label. I know pretty much 70% of the staff. So why not? I have nothing to do. I'm not moving back right away. And uh, so just throw a Hail Mary. Through this Hail Mary, I'm like, hey, Steve, like, hey, dude, uh, I know you're leaving and all, but I need a job. You think uh, Century Media is hiring? And then all of a sudden, I got a phone call. Dude, like, you should come through. Like next week, well, come to my party, but come through. Let's meet with Robert, the owner. And Robert knew who I was and who Robert was, but we never really met. And he was super in, into it. The average, we're going to do this and all this. And we're like, okay, cool. Like we're going to start with 40 bands. And at that point, you're like, you're, it was just me. <laughs> it was just me as the staff. And. He was like, we have 40 bands. We're going to release all at once. And I'm like, no, you're not. I'm not doing that. <laughs> and he kind of like looked at me. And Robert Camp is the, the nicest guy, thick German accent, will just give you his shirt off his back. He kind of like paused. He's like, why not? <laughs> he kind of got mad at me. He's like, why not? 
And Oliver, rest in peace, Oliver, was the money guy at Century. And he's like, finally, someone with sense. I love him. <laughs> and I was like, look, this is how you got to roll it out. And he gave him like a plan. He was like, you're hired. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I was A&R at this label that wasn't announced yet, but it was in the works to roll out with three, four bands. So yeah, so there's that story. Uh, so I basically was working there for a little bit and then I got a phone call about my dad being sick. He got so depressed the way things like left, left off that he was sick. And I was like, I got to go home, you know, <laughs> like now I want to stop and ask you a question Sure. because, uh, this is now 2003 or two, correct? Or three. three. All right. So this is 2003. And at this stage, you're in your early thirties or late twenties. Late twenties, late seventy-six. Yeah, late twenties. I was about twenty-seven, twenty-six, twenty-seven. Yeah. Was that the only place that you had traveled for hardcore at that point in your time? Had you ever been to Europe with bands, or were you no. just mostly? You so see, you're basically a typical New York person. Like you still at this point, you barely, besides hardcore shows, is the only way you traveled at this point. No, I've been on. I was at. I was on tour. I I would be on tour week here, two months here, you know, like just who were you touring with at that was, time? I toured with, uh, you know, ISIS. I toured with uh, this band Anodyne. I would jump in the van with Poison Well, Murder AD. Anyone that was coming through and coming back in a way, I was kind of like a hobo. I was a hardcore hobo. I was just like, Hey, what's up? <laughs> like, you know, like, Oh, you want to come with us? Like, yeah, sure. You come back this way. Sure. Cool. You know? So, I wasn't flying regularly at that point. Uh, so um, did you did you directly uh, sign any of the first bands for Abacus? And if so, which were they? I didn't, but I did have. I had a lineup that I was gonna. I was like, okay, you got this is this is the label. The label wants these bands, and it was uh, Radiation Four. This band, Glass Casket, fucking great band. Uh, Burned the eight track. Uh, this Canadian like pop punk band, uh, Radiation Four was kind of like a Mr. Bungle band. So we wanted to sign the Red Cord. I was like, I know those dudes, <laughs> you know. And then uh, I had Premonitions of War on my list. I had Unearth. I had a couple of bands from Canada that was like, the, the neat, this band needs to be like big. Um, who else? A lot of that, like between the Barry Me kind of scene, that was like the scene at the time. I was like the bigger bands, like on the move, um, that weren't signed, but like were about to be signed, like blow up. And then once I left, like Premonitions of War signed with Victory and put out that left in column with Victory. Um, a lot of other bands like Red Cord went to do clients with Metal Blade. Um, a, a lot of, a lot of like Unearth did, I forget what the fucking, whatever Unearth does, you know, that, <laughs> that LP at that time. But like, you know, those were the bands that were like, okay, I could bring, if you want this label to pop, let's go. Oh, and then Turmoil was still on Century at that time, but they never had that hardcore person to talk to. There yeah. was always like the German, the, Oh, we'll talk to the German office and they all know about black metal and nothing about hardcore. And like, okay, cool. We'll just bring turmoil over. 
um, and I'll just take care of them. Um, so yeah, so I had I had a list. A lot of people were stoked on it, and then once I left, they left. So and you, went the label, back, you went You so went back because your dad and the bands were just not as into it, or was it what the? It was just my dad. I was just what I was trying to ask is more so. What were the reasons why some of the bands that you approached, why didn't they end up taking the deal? Because I wasn't working there. You know, they, I was that person they can trust. They don't know Robert and Oliver and stuff. They, they're just money people. Like if they had a problem, I would get the phone call. And I was com- they were comfortable with me. I was comfortable with – that was the band I wanted to sign because they're my friends. And, like, I could tell them straight up, this is what you're going to get, you know, as much as I could. <laughs> At that point, being a, being a secret suit. Um, so they just felt like, like, unrepresented. Yeah, yeah, unrepresented, like they, they're not going to get what we do, but Rich does, you know, I, we've been booking with shows with Rich for four years now, like he gets it, you know? So, so, be, so because you were still booking shows in New York, I guess the question is, did it make an easy transition for you to come back home? because your father was sick and jump back in the shows or did you jump back in only after you knew your father was like doing all right? Uh, well, until TV's closed its doors, that was my, that was, I always had a job, you know, like I always had that job, you know, like waiting for me. I always had shows, always could always do a show. And then it was just kind of like, okay, but I was 28 at that point coming like the next year I was turning 28 and I was kind of like, I need to do something. I went on a two month tour with Zayo and it just killed me. And it was just grueling. It was just like 48 dates and 48, you know, days. I was just like, Oh, I can't do this anymore. So I stopped touring, but I was still doing shows. Um, there was just a point where I just needed like, I think at that point in my life, just kind of so I needed to settle down, slow down a little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I just got. Let me ask job. you about that Zayo tour real quick. Yeah. And at that point, were you like a tour manager or just kind of like a jump in the van merch guy? I was tour managing. I was so Zayo had their own tour manager at the, at the time, who's now their bass player Marty. Um, and then the, it was the Ferret tour, two thousand four, and then I just basically took care of the other three bands who were Misery Signals, Scarlet, and 12 Tribes. And then Misery Signals dropped off and remember never took the rest of the way. Um, but yeah, so I was tour manager for the rest of the bands for Carl. Just kind of like, oh, I'm that guy. Everyone's okay, comfortable with, and something goes wrong, I'm going to fix it, you know? So, but yeah, now, it, was, it, it was a long tour. Now, one of the reasons why... I always crack up is that we were at 2004 Hellfest for the whole weekend. <laughs> and there was this go. constant look, this constant look in your face when I ran by you. And you're just like, the the real word is nonplussed. Like you weren't affected, but yeah, but you could tell like Friday, you know, sick of it all headlined. I believe the one day and like you were chipper. Like, all right, cool. This is good. We're happy. <laughs> And then, like, Saturday pre-Fist White in the merch table area, yeah. you were still, like, chirpy. And like, hey, how's it going? And you were kind of running back and forth. Yeah. And uh, 
by Sunday, I I think you grew some gray hairs. And uh, I had a couple. I, I'll lay it out for people who hadn't been there but have maybe only seen videos. So Hellfest had been outside for two years and was massive. And Keith had teamed up with people from New Jersey and brought Hellfest into Elizabeth, New Jersey, which is a really centralized location versus Syracuse, New York, which is a pretty damn far drive for most of the East Coast. And it was at a sports center right off the Jersey Turnpike. So location was great. It was Rex a massive, Plex. yeah, like massive place. I mean, amenities out the ass. I mean, as far as settings go for what could have been like, oh, what a great, perfect day was there. I mean, like you couldn't ask for a better centralized location for a large hardcore metal festival at the point where you come home and you're obviously doing the tour and the front tour. Were you in any way besides fire put her outer and the Winston Wolf of 2004 Hellfest? No, at that point I was like, oh, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, No, I mean like pre, oh. preemptive. Did you have any pre-planning in that or did you just show up day of to I just showed up. Bullshit? I showed up the night before um, and I'm like, okay, this could work. You know? I didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> so this is where I, this is where you get the Winston Wolf at because you basically show up and you're like, all right, situation's chill. And I mean, I had no part in anything that made anything that you had to do harder. And I'll, I'll I, state that. I'll state that I'm just going to put it this way. I don't know what you're talking about. So, I, so, but I noticed through the weekend in our passing by that the situations <laughs> were getting crazier. Where do you think that like the touchdown moment, was it really at the end when bad luck 13 got on stage or was there already chaotic, more, uh, pressing matters that just weren't seen on the surface? Well, I think like rolling back to the hotel Saturday night and like Brent from Macedon like throwing up in like a potted plant by the concierge desk and like flipping off everyone. And I'm like, shit, I got to Winston Wolf this, you know? Like, this, I'm off right now. Like, fuck it. You know, like, why not? Like, all right, dude, let's go. What's your hotel room? Let's go upstairs. And I, I guess from there, just kind of like crumbled, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like, of course, you know, you're at a fest, no sleep, everyone's partying. Like, I pretty, I, I wish I had a Fitbit. I wanted, I wish I knew how many steps I took that, that whole weekend, but it just got crazier and crazier. It was like action park. It was just like, who's running the show here? Like what's going on? <laughs> you know? And so, then, go ahead. where where do you think in Sunday was it like two thirty three o'clock in the afternoon, or do you think it was like six seven o'clock when shit really hit the fan that you kind of realized like, uh oh. Once I heard they locked the doors, they locked everyone in where Bad Luck Thirteen is playing, and I'm looking through the window and seeing what's happening. Are you up top or are you on the lower level? I'm in the lower level. I'm like Okay, so you like, don't get the you didn't get the top view. No, I didn't get the top view. But I did get the view af afterwards. And I had a roll in let's put it this way, the fireman. <laughs> let me let me let me let me do what I gotta do and then you can and then you can sure. I think I know where we're gonna go. So sure. Bad Luck thirteen gets on stage. <laughs> Health two thousand and four. It's a giant basketball court type flooring with huge 
lightweight um, bleachers like a high school gymnasium. Earlier in the day, Bad Luck 13, because I'm really close with those guys, I had been asked, are they going to kill any live animals? And there was a thought about bringing live chickens and throwing them out on stage. Oh, cool. No one wanted to ride in the car with them, and Jay didn't want to send anybody to go pick them up from Chinatown. (laughs) So I was like, no, they don't have any live chickens. But the whole crew and band was on stage, and this is like the culminating moment of a mostly successful, although wildly violent weekend. And there's hiccups. Yeah, there's some hiccups, but I mean, ultimately, it was still a great time. And some of the, I mean, the lineup was unbelievable. Attendance was probably one of the biggest hardcore things in America I've ever been a part of. And yet, Hellfest gets on stage. Or, my, 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 Bad Luck 13 gets on stage at Hellfest. Within a song, there's bleachers flipped and pushed over. And this is where Rich Hall comes in and tells us the fallout. So, <laughs> I see three people running from the vent, from where you got, they're playing, right? They locked the doors, they locked the doors. And I'm like, uh oh. And I'm <laughs> pulling on the doors, like, let me in, let me in, I gotta fix this, I gotta fix this. And then at that point, I was just like, Ah, screw it. It's the last day. I'm like, you know what? I can't fix this. For one thing in my life, it's not on me. It's not, it's, it's not on me. You know, and this is all Keith. This is not my fest. Fuck it. Right? So everything happens. The, sh- the set is over. And I don't know how the, I think the fire department like opened up the doors or something from the outside. And I was with them. You're like, you can't go in there. There's all this broken uh, <laughs> fluorescent light bulbs. You have to wear a respirator. Go in with the respirator. So I had to wear like an oxygen tank and a respirator like a, a medic would walking into a fire, <laughs> checking out the carnage of this Bad Luck 13 extravaganza. <laughs> and like, just, I'm like, not my fest. I don't give a fuck. And I just like walk back outside. And I went right to the office and was like, can I get, can I get paid? <laughs> like, I'm going, I'm done. <laughs> you know, like that was my whole attitude towards it. You know, like as soon as I walked in with the rest, like I had to wear a respirator, <laughs> like a fucking firefighter to go into this, <laughs> to see like assess the damage. Then I was just like, yeah, no, <laughs> like I'm done. And luckily he was like, oh yeah, everything was covered. I'm like, are you sure? Because you haven't gone downstairs yet. So <laughs> Can I have my money? And I'm going to go take head and go home. <laughs> you know, I'm out. <laughs> so that was my whole reaction towards it, you know? Well, so it's, <laughs> I remember you telling a part of that. It's just like all things, Rich Hall, you hear a piece of a story, but if you're not there at the beginning, you're just like missing key elements. Yeah. One of the things that happened after that is where another festival may have said, hey, you know what? Maybe we went got too far, and instead, Hellfest planned for a larger venue in 2005 in Trenton, New Jersey, at basically a small stadium. Here we go. And, and at, again, I, I always ask this because I know that you've always come into play and helped me with my own stuff, and we'll get into that. But were you involved in any single way before the fallout of 2005 with any planning or any kind of band booking with the Trenton Hellfest? Yeah, I was brought in 
you help with the booking with Matt, me and Matt and Keith, of course. And now is that Matt Dunn again? Yes, it's Matt Dunn again. He's still on the team at this point. He didn't say fuck it like I did the previous year, but he, you know, like Keith was like, where, ah, dude, where yeah. was the radio takeover guy in all this? Well, I guess they just provided all the, you know, film equipment and there was like oh, producing I, the show. I'm, um, I I guess I'm mistaken. I thought he had like a bigger like involvement in like the planning and production end of it. I'm sorry. Well, he did. You know, he, this is where like everyone, this is where all the cameras going to go and it's going to be shot like this and like. Okay. It's so gonna be this... I, I see where you're saying. No, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Not, nothing like. He may have, it may have been the grand scheme of things of him and Sean and Keith be like, yeah, this is going to be the place and this is what's going to happen and we're going to make X amount of money and like do all that. I wasn't involved. You know, again, Rich, do you want to do this? Sure. Like, you're going to get paid this. I'm like, I better, you know? So. I will cut out, I will cut out questioning anything else. I'd like you just to give me whether it's like, T minus three days before, or is it five days? When the your spider sense and uh, intuition that shit ain't right start happening for two thousand and five Hellfest? Probably T minus ten hours before. Wow. You know. Yeah. All right, lay, lay the groundwork. <laughs> lay the groundwork. Uh, but I'll say quickly: two thousand and five Hellfest which was scheduled in Trenton, New Jersey. The headliner, one of them, was Public Enemy. Um, yes. <laughs> it is 15 years later, so I don't expect all of our listeners or even some of them, the younger folks, to understand that the entire festival just didn't happen, and the result was a uh, slight yes. panic. I think if there was Twitter instead of like the slow-moving – Whatever it was, friend, Friendster, or I don't think MySpace existed. MySpace. Sorry, it was MySpace. But uh, essentially, I think if there was Twitter, Instagram, it would have probably been like its own pandemic level freak out. But it would have been Fire Festival. What, it, exactly. Oh my God, I was actually searching for the word. So, Hellfest 2005 is comparable in so many ways to Firefest, only thankfully for the attendees, it would never even happen. And what took place is that Rich Hall, Robbie Redcheeks, Sean Agnew, and I think even Tim Boer had a show booked at the Trocadero in a matter of less than 20 hours, took the best cream of the crop, hardcore punk, and made sure they still had shows on the East Coast. And I'm going to let Rich take it away and kind of give us from the fallout until the savior of 2005 Hellfest. So basically, I was working, I was at my desk. I worked at a company called Band Merch. It was uh, the merch company for Lincoln Park, my chemical romance and all that kind of stuff. And I was at my desk and all of a sudden, oh, Sean Agnew's calling me. Oh, Robbie Redshig's calling me. Oh, Sean Agnew's calling me again. I was like, I got to take this. And all I hear is, okay, what's going on? <laughs> you know, like, how fast is canceled, right? I'm like, this is... News to me, because I was working all day, and I was just like, uh, let me call you back. Call, I'll call Joe Dowling. I'm like, is it true? And he was like, yep. Everything, everything's just chaos. And my phone, at this point, I had a Trio cell phone. It was 
It was a pretty cool phone. It was just going off the, it was bands, managers, booking agents. I was just like, I got to go. I got to go home or something, you know? And I was like, what's, what's happening? I'm like, yeah, they locked the doors. No one's allowed in the venue. You know, like, we can't get in touch with Sean. We can't get in touch with Keith. And I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> you know, like, what do you want me to do? You know? And then it was just, it was just more chaos. Like, how do, like, all these bands traveled to play this show to Jersey. And now they're just literally stuck outside this baseball stadium, like, waiting <laughs> to get their next move from their booking agent or publicist or manager, you know? And like, we, Sean was like, I need your help. And I'm like, well, Okay, let's do this. And I'll just throw a bill together. And it became like coalescent turmoil at the church. And then, um, you guys, you guys did one. And I think the big thing was 108 reunion and yeah, there was, life, there 108 was lifetime, reunion and lifetime was, reunion. Yeah, there was lifetime and bounce of souls the Friday night at the Trocadero. Yeah. And there was also turmoil. Coalesce, all else failed at the mm -hmm. First Unitarian Church on Friday. Yeah. Saturday in the morning was there was, there was two the shows. The 108 reunion plus yep. champion plus comeback kid and random bands as a matinee at the church. And then there was Lifetime and 108 at the Starlight Ballroom. Yep. The same night Madball played was a slew of bands at the Trocadero. Mm -hmm. And then there was something Saturday and Sunday at the Starland, Starland Ballroom in New Jersey. But I it don't know who booked it. It was the bigger kind of like, it was like Under Oath and like kind of those bands, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was something like that. Um, so yeah, so like, you know, I was like, okay, Sean, you know, like here's Sean Ingram's number for Coalesce, get in touch with them. I'll be down in Philly tomorrow. We'll see I'll, to see the show uh, and all this kind of stuff. And kind of like I was doing it on the fly. I was just helping everyone on the fly, you know. And then I came down for the 108 Lifetime show at Starlight, and I was like, okay, "Cool!" And like that, that was like pretty much the first time me and you like had a conversation, <laughs> you know. Well, and it was always was in like, it was always in a passing, right? And I, I think because I was working the second show. Yeah. That we had time to actually sit and we were eating pizza. Yeah. And it was like 20 of us goons ready to do our third show in a row of security. And we ordered like 20 something pizzas. Yeah. And, and you invited me for a slice. Yeah. And like Rob Fish and his kids came up and they're like, Hey, uh, can we have some pizza? And I'm like, Yeah, your kids, absolutely. Whatever you. And then like you came up. So we end up being like all the goons and then we get to hang and talk. And I was like, I always think about that moment because it was like, the calm before like another chaotic, insanely hot show. Yeah, but it was one of the hottest shows I've been to in Philly ever. And like being going to Stalag and Kill Time in the summer, it didn't match that show. But it was an amazing show. You guys pulled it off well, on the fly. But again, like you know, like everyone was coming to me because they couldn't get in touch with anyone else because everyone else was out of out of touch or just out of the country at that point. Who knows? You know, and you know, like, and 
Keith offered me a pretty nice sum of money to do this fest, and it was going to be the pro the pro fest. You know what I mean? Like, okay, let's do it. Let's be professional. Like, Public Enemy's playing. Okay, got to deal with that. Let's do it. We got to deal with this. I think Rock from the Crypt was going to play. I forget. But yeah, like, there was, there, was some, there was a slew there was some of major bands. bands. Yeah, yeah. And then it just all right. I'll just help someone else out now. <laughs> you know. So now, before we get into that aspect. One of the things that I probably have said to you in person because we speak a lot, but I need to mention it for people listening is the fallout from Hellfest 2005 became a point of, wow, maybe Philly can have a fest and coinciding with a month later and uh, Posse numbers having problems and Bob Mack deciding not to do it again was the impetus and drive and inspiration to do my first This Is Hardcore Fest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What, happened, what would happen would be another Dr. Qual evil villain moment <laughs> over the next couple of years where it would be Rich Hall hitting me with a, hey, I know who you booked. And, well, no. No, 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 no. It was always okay. good. You were always good about yeah. it. It was never mean, but it was funny. Yeah. Cause we wouldn't speak and you'd say, hey, I know who you have. I'm just letting you know, like, I just need to know what day you're booking them because I want to do them in New York too. And if it was okay with you guys to do that. Yeah, like, you were always good about it, but it was great because, like, because of who you are and, like, your, like, ability to still know what's going on, like, (laughs) God damn, Rich Hall got me again. Like, yeah, like, God damn it, Rich Hall got me again. He he already (laughs) knows who we're booking. And uh, that became, that became, like, another reason for us to get more acquainted and talk more was because you were still doing the DIY booking at that level where, yeah, CBs have been gone. And I want to talk on that for a second, too, just sure. around the same time frame. But here you are still immersed in all this. But uh, I always appreciated, like, you guys kind of putting that together and showing me, like, oh, fuck, people would come to Philly and deal with, like, the craziness of the hot summer just for a show. So, yeah. Hellfest ends in 2005. Um, CB's is closed in 2006. 2006. And um, do you have some stories about how that closed, how you were told? Like, you want to give me some rundown on that? Well, a lot of it was like, they can't pay rent. Rent's going to go up. And I'm like, I don't know about that. You know, I, we do money here. We kind of know it does really well. Um, there's no problem. There's no landlord coming and trying like yelling at us about paying rent and stuff. And maybe that was just behind the scenes. And during the during office hours when I wasn't usually there, I was usually working or just at home at that point or whatever. Um, and then it was just like there was just rumblings, you know, like Hilly was sick. Hilly wasn't into it anymore. He was just gonna like, you know, just close it up, screw it, right? And then um, there was also rumblings where, like, I don't know. It was just kind of odd. Hilly's family, just very vindictive to each other. Like, very, like, kind of like, who's going to off who first to get the, the CBGB's, like, you know, legacy kind of deal. And, um, and that, like, his daughter, Karen, was kind of a shithead. And she didn't know how anything worked at the club and always – we called her the wrench because every time she would show up and we were doing the show, it would always be like Friday night. It would be like a huge rock and roll show or like higher fire playing 
or something huge has just come and like it's ruined everything and ruined the vibe and like we were just so self-sufficient and um so like she was more involved in the day-to-day kind of stuff and like the club was kind of getting fucked because of it the booking just the people just didn't want to work when she was there um she was just a bum out and then so i guess the story is that she tried to get or no she missed she's a lawyer she missed the uh what is it a landmark status from the city so it can be the building can be saved or it can be preserved and never closed or whatever and she missed out or she like fumbled it so badly that he didn't get it somehow and she was like all right there's nothing left we can do (laughs) we're closing so that was kind of like the insider thing that we kind of picked up on without even knowing about um but we would hear from we would hear from other clubs and other people who are closer to Hilly about it, and then um, I'm like, ah, I guess this is it. This sucks, you know. And then I didn't have any involvement in any of the booking. I think I was just more, I was just like super depressed about it, you know. Like, oh, my home for the last eleven years is closing, you know. Like, and I had my own life and full time job at the at that time. Just like, okay, you know. Um, yeah, like I, I'll tell you this. I was the last. I was supposed to take down the awning when, like, the show was like, you know, Patty Smith played. Show was over. Take down the awning. You know, make it a make it a thing. And I just couldn't do it. I just started crying. I was up in the ladder, like, I can't do it. I can't can't do it. And then some schmuck that we hired for this as a body did it. Didn't care. You know, didn't care. It didn't really mean anything to them. Um, so. At that point, I was like, yeah, this is done, you know, like this sucks. And uh, the next night was the employee party because all the booze left over. And it was sad because it was just like these 40 people I've like seen get hired, fired, rehired the last 11 years. And like, I'm not really going to go see them again because I don't really hang out where they hang out (laughs) or just like, you know, like they have different lives now. You know, they're going to live those lives. I'm not going to see them as frequently as I did, like pretty much nightly for, again, the past 11 years. And it was really, it was really hard. At this stage, are you still, because you said you had a full-time job, were you still engaged with booking shows or where were you at with your employment elsewhere? So I took a break from doing shows just because it was becoming a full-time job and nothing, and not that I loved and a lot of bands were getting these guarantees that I really didn't understand because I knew what their base market value was instead of their agency group guarantee told me that it was. You know what I mean? Because, you know, you'd be around like, I'm not paying that for that band. You you, you tell me, you know, like you could, you could talk to Jeremy Holderson from, or, you know, and be like, I'm not paying for this band. And he's like, you're not going to show. Then you know what I'm going to do? I'm like, okay. But like, I was like, I don't know why. I just still needed to do it. And I still lost money because like, because I'm king (laughs) because we're we're dumb and we did it. Yeah. And like, I'm like, I'm paying right now. I'm living with, I have a roommate now. Like I have all these bills now. I'm on my own. I'm not just going, okay, you can give me a t-shirt and like, I got a couple of bucks for a sandwich and I can go and take a cab home. Cool. That's cool with me. You know, go back to my mom's house and live out, 
you know, <laughs> raid her refrigerator, but no, I don't have that anymore. So I just took a break. I took a break and I was just, I was doing really good at my job um, at this company, Band Merch. And like, I'm like, okay, I'm pretty good at doing sales. It was just like doing, uh, you know, getting spins for records. And then I basically, you know, just kind of had, I was just, okay, I'm a, I'm a, I'm an office jockey now, you know? So, but it was cool. I was still involved in music and I was still dealing with bands that I knew and like loved and like people I loved and managers and stuff. And like, I, I made my own marketing position through the company and like, I was making some cash, like, cool. Like, okay, cool. You know, this doesn't suck. I'm not losing money, <laughs> you know? So like, I did drink a lot more, but you know, what are you going to do? But I was, I was the guy. I was recalling, like, yeah, just send Rich to the to show and like, he'll take care of the, the bands, you know? It was like Vegas, like, oh, hang out with the Rat Pack, you know? <laughs> like, okay. But at that point, like, I, I needed a break from doing shows personally. It was just becoming strenuous, more like strenuous in my pocket. And then just for like my health, because at that point I'd be working a job, you know, the job was on Prince Street, walk on over to CB's, work at CB's from seven to one, wake up, go travel all the way to Queens or Brooklyn and do it all over again every day, you know? And it just, and then do shows on top of that. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. You know? Well, so I just, where, where you were at in music was that you were still doing the occasional show, but it seemed like your focus was shifting. And I can remember there was a surge of people who were definitely more in the part of an industry versus part of yeah. a scene, part of hardcore. And really, pushing smaller promoters who like yourself and myself and the king himself agnew always was like fuck that i'm not paying that. i don't care if they play somewhere else and exactly. there's been so many times when i wish i just adapted sean's like fuck you you're not gonna have me lose money because you think they're worth more and i have to ask this simple question do you think that they were already gearing up to go to a more corporate-minded world and they were hoping to push guys like us out or do you think that they were just greedy at the time they were just greedy because like i would get the show anyway okay we'll go with you because the guys love you all right fine by me <laughs> you know like I, I can also relate to how many times that's been said so again me and you linked up on 108 which is like january 08 and you oh, put yeah. together was that the cake shop show that you did, or was there a different show that was the big cake shop show? I did, I did two, I did two one away shows that day, one in one in the afternoon and one um, at night, and that was one o eight o nine or one o eight ten. I forget. Yeah. yeah, I know that we. Sh I know that you once again came big time, and was like, "Hey, uh, I'm doing this. How about you do this?" And for younger promoters, that they no, it wasn't out. like that. I was like. It was no, more you were, like, no, you were, you were doing what you do. Hey, bud, yeah. I'm doing them. Do you want the other show? And when I was trying to get there's out, there's that. Like, yeah. Yeah. What you were, what younger promoters I don't think do enough is talk amongst themselves. And so these kind of opportunities exist all the time. If, if you're from Connecticut or you're from Rhode Island or you're from 
whether Poughkeepsie or you're from, Long, you know, uh, Connecticut, yeah. somewhere, link with each other, man, because that's that's how old school promoters got it done. Like, hey, I'm doing this this day. They could do it this day. Let's let's rock out and make it happen. And I just always appreciated you uh, linking Philadelphia and me into the equation. Oh, so, it's because me and Robbie, we wanted to do that in the first place, like in the early 2000s when he was. I actually was going to ask you that next. Yeah. Was there a time where you were really trying to uh, go further? And I, I, Robbie had always said that to me, like, you know, there was a time where me and Rich were really thinking about just expanding and just making sure the East Coast. But I, I always wanted to hear your perspective on what you guys were thinking and talking about doing. No, we were thinking the whole whole East Coast from, like, Baltimore all the way up to Boston, all the way down the East Coast. Make sure you're like, okay, here's the six, seven promoters that you're going to go through. The day's open, then you link it through that, you know? And then we're trying to work it out. Because, like, you know, me and Robbie always link to you, like, yo, Durbates need a show in New York. Can you do it? I'm like, yeah, of course we're going to do it. Like, oh, AN needs that show this day. Is it free? Did, it hit, did they hit you up already? Like, no, I'll, I'll hit up Wes or I'll hit up Tim about it. And then we would just give each other hints or, like, dates. Like, oh, yeah, this guy's coming through. You want to do the show? You like this band? Like, yeah, I can't do it at CB's, but I'll do it on Long Island, maybe. Is that cool? Yeah, cool. So I just wanted to do it that way, just on a broader scale, like literally the whole East Coast. I didn't know anyone from, like, Delaware, Delaware and down, but I knew everyone up from, well, I mean, Robbie as well, but, like, we both all knew whoever, Connecticut, New England, you know, Scott Lee, whoever was doing the majority of the shows at the time. So Big we just shout out to, to Scott Lee, my boy. Scott Lee, my dog. What's up, dude? Uh, <laughs> another so, future episode human being yeah so it was just like it was just stupid not to do it or not to think about it so why not just do it and it worked but it didn't work on the scale that I that we wanted it to do and then the Robbie like didn't was he stopped doing shows Fuse was closing Long Island wasn't really the place to play anymore um, it was just kind of like this weird hiatus area, you know, like era, you know, where that happened. So like, okay, but you you got to think big because even if you don't, even if you, I don't know what I was going to say, but whatever, you just got to think big. You just got to throw a hail mary, and the, it's you're going to catch it, you're going to catch it, or you're not. It's too, you know. So. so. I, 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 I wanted to elaborate on that for you. So yeah. I know it's easy for you to say throw a Hail Mary because um, I, I want to do this in the right timeline. So you were still doing shows. And then at what point did you just say, fuck the shows, I'm moving out Northwest with Carrie? Um, so, so around 2008, 2009, I got let go of my job. And it was just before the crash. And it wasn't, it didn't have to do anything with the crash. The company was just, it just got bought by a bigger company and like, they didn't see a need for the New York office. And I didn't want to move out to California again because I knew what was going to happen or whatever. I, I just didn't want to deal with it. And my boss kind of knew, but he had to offer me it. So, um, I was living in Brooklyn and I, you know, Nate Newton, our buddy Nate Newton, you know, he. Big Nate. What's up, Nate? And he had a new band, Doom Riders, you know, Converge was writing or something. It was like, yo, I want to play Brooklyn. I want to play New York. Like, he hit me up. And then, like, okay, I could do it. And then, like, shit, how am I going to do this? <laughs> like, I don't know anyone who, go, like, I, I knew a couple of people, but 
Um, so yeah, so I just did a show. I just did a show of what I normally did. Like threw on a couple of my friends' bands that kind of sounded like Doom Riders or didn't sound like Doom Riders and just had a great time. And um, yeah, and just it just happened. It just fell back into place. And there was a couple of promoters at the time who was booking shows there. Like, who are you? And all this and whatever. And like, I'm just, just me. I just did the show. There's my friends, you know, like, like, whoa, okay. I see how it is. You know, like, like this girl promoter was just like, they're my friends. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I, I really have to like, let you know that I know Nate since like 97, <laughs> you know, like we go way back, you know, it was 2009, you know, and 2010, whatever it was. And like, okay, if you want to book them, go, they want this date. And then she'll come back to me like, Nate said he's already doing the show with you. I'm like, all right. <laughs> and there it is, you know? There's that super villain again, you know? Like, um, it, and then it just fell into place again. I just started doing shows again. I had nothing else to do. I was unemployed. Um, I did work at, um, another merch company, Bravado, which basically, uh, is like Metallica and Guns N' Roses and the, the bigger bands merch company. And I did the same thing, but it wasn't the same feeling. And I got let go in 2000, yeah, in 2009. So I was just like, I'm living in Brooklyn. My rent's cheap. I'm just going to do shows again and do them as much as I can. And there's just this, this new wave of bands coming through and. It was all my friends because they were all like members of bands I booked before. They all lived in Brooklyn, so they're like, oh, it's going to go rich. And it just, you know, kind of like stockpiled. But there was, there was a hitch. How do I get the word out? Do people do flyers now? Or is it just internet? You know, like this is where the internet comes in, as we alluded to before. Like post uh, pre-internet, now this is internet present. And like, I didn't know what to do. And like, Burnt by the Sun was um, wanting to get together again, do another show. Like, yeah, sure. I'm into it. I got this spot. I think I have a spot. And then I linked up with Brooklyn Vegan and they were, that was my promotion. You know, <laughs> that was my, that's how people knew about stuff. I, I'm like, I didn't know that. Like, okay, cool. And then that just blew up because I had the promotion. But a good thing never lasts. I guess bands like clicks then uh friendships, then it just kinda got it just kinda got redundant in a way. And like then people started like being competitive, like, well I can offer more. And I'm like, You sure you can afford more? I'm like, all right, whatever. I'm like, I'm good. I don't have to do I hate God show again. This would be my tenth I hate God show. I don't really I like have to, to do that. I'd like to cut in here because sure. I thought a lot of the same things. So similarly to what Rich Bell is, at a certain point in time as a promoter, you build relationships across decades and yeah. you have this trust. If Rich does the show, the promotion's there, the venue's the right spot, you don't have to think like, oh, is this not going to work? And similarly, in my own booking, I had the same thing where I had the reputation. I had the tutelage, you know, from Sean and really started picking up 
just the quality and you know between the, this is hardcore or getting bigger i had a bigger growing amount of bands that were coming back for their regular one-off shows in philly through me and yet there was promoters who were starting to show up and because they wanted a piece of the pie they were willing to risk and lose money to be like i need the show so bad i'll offer you more money than this guy and it's a hard thing as a promoter to take the loss and not do the show but it's also one of the most important lessons in being a promoter which is why i have to bring it up and illuminate this is there will always be the friendship and there will always be a band business relationship and you can lose both if you react negatively to one or the other and i've done that plenty of times where certain bands have gone another way and it's a personal thing and promoters definitely go through it where hey man we're the guy we kick ass we do right by you we're not trying to make a million dollars and this other person who you're going to work with solely wants to do this because they want to make money off you which has never been my personal intention i've always been like hey i want the best show possible and usually if the intentions are right the money will come but i i completely i completely hear in you what was going on for me at the same time and so when you bailed you went right into art and then to the northwest or was it which 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 order was it so i stopped drinking in 2010 due to a uh, hospital visit that I should never have been in the hospital in the first place. And I got mad at myself and I just needed an outlet again. And I just was like, I'm going to be on a break. You know, currently it's been 10 years. I haven't drank booze. Um, thank the Lord. It saved my life. Um, but I don't know. I just like started. So when I was unemployed the first time, I, what am I going to do? Like, I'm just going to teach myself Photoshop because I kind of know it, you know, it's the same program from college, right? And I had all the time in the world and okay, I can do this. And I just started doing graphics and graphic design, let's say, um, first. And then like my roommate was just like, oh, dude, you should start painting. I love all your paintings like that you showed me. I'm like, yeah, you're right. And like comes home with this canvas and like these paints. She's like, just paint something for the house. I'm like, all right, cool. So I would be dabbling at that point. And then once my roommate moved out and I lived alone, I had the space to uh, paint more. And that's all I really did. And um, so, yeah. So I, uh, I basically just started to do it on the side. And, like, people would come over. Like, you paint? I'm like, yeah. You know, I just – Something that I never really talked about because it never really came up, you know, because I was just the show guy. Um, and then um, once, once Carrie came into the mix, she, uh, she was my biggest fan. So, like, it made me more confident to do more um, again. And then when we moved out here, um, I – there was always, there was already a promoter. I kind of was always, I was burnt on promoting and I wanted something new in my life. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll run back <laughs> for that in a second. Um, and there was always, there was already a promoter here, Lori LeFevre with Infinite Productions and she's 34 years in Seattle. So I'm like, they got that promoter. You know, they got that Rich Hall. Well, I don't need to 
I'm, I'm over it anyway. <laughs> so I'm just going to do this. And I just, my buddy Dave um, was like, you need to paint me something. Because I remember seeing you in Brooklyn, your house, on like, you know, all these paintings that you did. I want something for my birthday. I'm like, okay, cool. And I painted him something. I put it on the internet. And, you know, all my music industry friends saw this. And they're like, well, you did that? Like, that's crazy. And I'm like, yeah, you know, it's something I've done all my whole life, but never really done, you know. And then um, our friend Jenny, uh, my wife's work wife, was like, paint my dog. And I'm like, okay, I'll paint your dog. Like, and put it on the internet. I'm like, oh, my God, you do, dog, you do pet portraits? I'm like, yeah. Like, how much for one? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I never really sold a piece before, you know, like, and then it just snowballed. Um, but yeah, but, and I'm currently doing this, I don't want to say as a profession, but at right now, like pandemic, pandemic wise, this is just mental health at this point. You know, I know a lot of people are struggling hard. They were struggling before. And like for them to like to pick up a piece and, and if they can, that's cool, you know, but like right now I'm just getting all my frustrations being a dad, <laughs> being like trying to hold my family together during all this surviving and just doing this as mental health. Well, so, and I'm, gl I'm glad I have this outlet, you know, <laughs> so. I want to, I want to take it back to something and it ties into what you just said, which is where I, I was reminded. So for those who, want to get caught up rich is not in the promoting game anymore but being a person who uh, understands this story of rich hold on let me got i got okay. i'll set this up right for you there is few things more important than understanding that you don't need to always know the first person in the link but there's one thing that's certain is most of the time you may know the second or third person connected. And the one thing I always know about Rich Hall is that he always had a link in to who and where and why. And I don't know if you remember, but I used to press you all the time on social media about asking you about certain bands and, you know, booking. And at one point you're like, I just appreciate that you didn't forget that I still did shows and that, you know, now that I'm not booking and I'm just doing my art thing. You know, it's a hard thing for a promoter to walk away from it and do what Rich did. And then I I didn't realize that I was even doing it to Rich the way this was, like in a positive way. I just knew Rich was the guy who knew the guy. And he knew the story of why these bands either didn't play or if they were going to play. And that's how we kind of linked back up. Or am I remembering that incorrectly? No, you, that's the thing that's big in my life. That's big. It's big for me in a in another person's respect. If you give me respect, you know, if you give me respect and you're cool with my dog, like that's cool. That's it. That's it, man. We're cool. Um, and you showed me so much respect, you know, even back then, you know, like, but I would show you, I would, I gave, I gave it to you first. You know what I mean? Like, Hey, Joe, Egan Dagger wants to play the show. I know they're the, the surprise for the fest. Like, is it cool that I can do this show here that I really want to do in Brooklyn? You know what I mean? I would make sure that it was cool with you because, like, I didn't want to, like, step on your toes. I didn't want to go. It, it's like going back to our conversation, like, walking into Castle Heights and thinking I'm going to get jumped because I didn't book, you know, EGH or something, you know? So, like, 
and they never and they never wanted to know the truth about it about why I didn't, they just knew I just didn't do it. Just, it was just like, oh, he hates us. And I'm like, I don't hate anyone. Well, that's not right. That's not true. <laughs> There's a couple of people on the list on the well, laminated list. I think it's something that you and I both share is that at different times we were not booking certain bands mm-hmm. and there is a stigma regarding being a promoter where you don't book the band for any number of reasons. Some of them is the collateral damage, which is something that you and I talk about a lot, especially when we're working on this is hardcore, but also just in general because the vibe wouldn't be right for the kind mm-hmm. of show we're curating. Mm-hmm. So, um, in tying in your show promoting career into this whole art thing is that the lasting impact that you're going to have beyond just CBGBs and just being the guy who kind of braced New York City's most heralded venue for a complete change in the kind of bands that kids wanted to see at a place like CBGBs is that you were one of the last promoters in the game that could take a show from a single band, put four or five other bands on it, and it was something that people would go, holy fuck, I got to be there. And it's like the, to me, any person could put an opener on a four band package. And I, and I hate the four band package. I, I totally subscribe to the Robbie that the four band package ruined the art of promoting a show. But Rich Hall really is an artist in that he's managed <laughs> to just take so many different elements of hardcore and punk and put them into shows. And I've always appreciated it. But, what happens next is that eventually Rich joins the This Is Hardcore team in a lot of aspects, whether it's showing up and just giving a hand in a way that he did formerly with Hellfest. But you were pretty integral in bringing us some bands. And, I mean, I could tell you Snapcase was definitely all you, uh, disembodied all you. I mean, it really helps me as someone who's just trying to make – the best potential show and lineup happen. And I what about pulling somebody... <laughs> You know, I mean, that as well. But what I'm saying to you is like, <laughs> you specifically, you just came in at This Is Hardcore at the right time for me, where you always had these ideas or, hey, how about you get me Harvest? And how about you do this? And I just always needed that Rich Hall angle into the lay stage of This Is Hardcore because we had run so many of our own it's like a algorithm well here's what i would do and then you'd be like well have you tried this and you know publicly i don't know how much people understand your impact so i just wanted to give you your your due here and say that in the last let me see the last five six this is hardcore you had a personal touch on it and then i mean there has definitely been a moment or two in the office where I'm flipping out about the absolute stupidest thing. And you're the, you're looking at Greg Dale and you're like, Joe, uh, we'll take care of it. This isn't a problem, you know? <laughs> and yeah, I, I, I mean, maybe we should add a camera because YouTube fodder, but I just want to say <laughs> thank you and let everybody know, like, even as this man is living in the Northwest with his beautiful wife and they have an amazing <laughs> child and he's painting these awesome pictures, he was still making the trek out just to be there for me as a friend and to continue in the capacity that he was most well for, which is being the fucking Winston Wolf of hardcore fests <laughs> and, and solving problems. And I just really appreciate, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate having someone like you to lean on when literally I'm flipping out about the dumbest thing that I shouldn't be mad about. And you're like, dude, this isn't even an issue. 
And uh, where I, I appreciate like to, it, man. <laughs> where I like to, I like to ask you a couple quick ones, and then we'll. Uh, I know your time is valuable, and obviously you got a child and a wife. Um, the first one, uh, the first one yeah. comes from Tyler, and he said he wants to know where the booger sugar is. <laughs> so uh, booger sugar. So uh, ninety six machine head at CBGB's. One of the biggest shows, probably. I, well, not, not not that Tyler did there, maybe. <laughs> if if Tyler is uh sending questions, and I never really dealt with a tour manager before, and then there's we walk to see these. There's fucking three fucking tour buses, like people like rolling in road, road cases, all this like pro shit going on. I'm like, whoa, okay. And we're downstairs at CB's, the gallery. Like, the pizza place was open at that point. And uh, <laughs> this dude comes like, hey, man, you work here? I'm like, yeah, man. <laughs> He's just like, do you know where the booger sugar is? And I'm like, what? The what? And I didn't know he was referencing cocaine. <laughs> I didn't know. I'm like, uh, I don't have any, dude. Sorry. See you later. You know, I'm 20 at this point. I'm like, okay, guys. See you later. Bye. You know? And, uh. And here's a funny story about that. So I'm working at my band merch, uh, the band merch job, and we had the band Shadows Fall on our roster, and I was doing marketing for them, and they had a couple of meet and greets at some uh, t-shirt stores in Western Mass, you know. And I'm on the bus with the band and hanging out and all this, and then all of a sudden from the back, here comes this TM dude. I'm like, wait a second, I know you. You're from the Machine Head Tour, 96. You asked me for drugs, man. He was like, yeah, that tour ruined my life. I lost my wife, and I, kicked, I got kicked out of my house. <laughs> you, just I'm like, up, you just really kicked up on the ground. I'm like, good for you, man. <laughs> I just, like, walked up. I was just, like, laughing at him, you know? And, like, like, of course, the band had to know the story, you know, and all that. So, like, that's an interesting story because it came full circle. I'm like, yes, because you're going to run into that guy anyway, like in the industry, you know, at shows or dealing with bands and some tour managers and stuff. And here's this dude. I'm like, I know you. I know you. He looked the same, you know, did the, the same weird thing with his hair, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the Boga Sugar story. So, <laughs> so it's basically like a private joke between me and Tyler, you know, Boga Sugar, you know. Hit me with another one. When you look at when you look back at this timeline, I mean, it really stands out as a lot of promoters have four to maybe eight years of just solid promoting, and then whether it's real life or as you brought up a couple times, this shift in what's popular and not being on the next wave. What do you think made you able to ride out from '96 all the way till the end of 2010 into 2011 as a promoter? 2012. I couldn't, I couldn't remember because I, all right. No, I remember no, no. that we were, I remember we still shared a show or two together, Yeah. but then I do remember when you moved and I, I couldn't place it. And I'm, I'm it was actually my last show because it was, this is hardcore weekend and our show wanted to play Brooklyn before. And again, I called you like, Hey, Oh yeah. They right. play. Yeah, would, would it be okay? You know? Yeah. It was 2012. Um, what was the question again? I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's some of my questions get kind of like outlandishly long, and I apologize. You're fine. Um, the question is, how does someone who has 
booked for 16 years, managed to go through the waves and the different shift of bands. Like, how did you manage it? Or were you not even thinking like, uh oh, here's a change of the guard while you were going through all that? I just didn't think that. I just like, I just, oh, wow, this has a fresh sound. This is what kids like. Cool. Let me know more about it. And working, not just doing shows, but in different realms of music, doing radio, merchandise, you, you get to understand the, the trends and you get to understand really what the kid at the mall are, is checking out. So like, as a promoter, you need to be optim, you know, optimistic. Ugh. You know, you got to grab the opportunity while it's at the lower level, because when they get to the higher level, they're still going to remember you. You know what I mean? So like, no, I agree wholeheartedly. So like, let's put it this way. I went to college with, uh, Gerard Way of my Romance. So he basically took my comic job when I went to the music route, you know, and I almost tried to sign them a couple of times before they got signed to a major label. And then here's that impact. They're playing, they're headlining over Lincoln Park on Jones Beach. And here's Gerard Way screaming my name over their song. And my, the president of my company is like, why is he doing that? Why does he know you? You know, so there's that impact. That's why I want to do it. And that's why I want to like, I don't want to say nurture, but like curate and understand what, it, it, same with art. What's, what's hot? What are the kids checking out? Is it still cause? Is it still like this street artist from LA? Is it still Re Michael Reeder from LA? You know, like what's going on? I want to be involved. I still want to be involved. You know, I just want to be in the middle. You know, I, I'm not going to probably go yell the loudest, but I still want to be checking it out. You know, I want to be in the corner. Mate, and I think that's me being a security, like doing a, being security. I'm just in the shadows looking at it, watching everything, just making sure everything's okay. And I want to be a part it. of it. So I think because so much of what I saw, not only was you doing the running around, but you were on stage for, and when people are on stage, there's always this like, Oh, this guy's on stage because he wants to be seen and looked at. And it's like, no motherfucker, we're on stage to make sure people don't jump the fuck off the PA or, you know, we're damage <laughs> control. Yeah. If damage yeah. control in case this guy jumps on the drummer. Yeah, this um, band's got 17 more minutes. I got to make sure they have 17 more minutes. Like, get out of here, scene guy. Yeah, you know? like, yeah, it's more of a job job than it's a hang job at that moment. So, yeah, I'm not a stage potato. I'm working. Oh, move, you know? So Now, <laughs> again, you're art major, college, yet you find yourself consistently being hired in these professional levels and these music industry jobs because of what you learned in DIY. And something that I find resoundingly uh useless is running into humans who are younger and they say to me well i, I want to go to school to get into the music industry <laughs> and i constantly remind them and this podcast is a testament to that like if you're going to make it in music you're going to make it through hustle you're going to make it by learning the ropes at the lowest like below the dirt line <laughs> or the dirt line and you're going to work your way up and I gotta ask you, backdoor man. That, yeah, the backdoor man. Where do you place yourself in a corporate music market in 2020? And do you think your DIY 
base and background still has value in that kind of world? You know, it's funny because it's like, you know, my age, I'm 44 right now. And like, I'm a dinosaur in the music industry right now, probably, you know, I should be like head of Interscope at this point. But like, I think if I rolled into a smaller label and I think, I think I'm more of a smaller type project person than like, I'm going to roll into Sony and like tell them what to do. Like, I'd rather be heard than talk. So, you know what I mean? I'd rather be, I'd rather have these people like, I want to know what, what you, what you went through and how you would go about it instead of like, yeah, yeah, Rich, cool. We're just going to do whatever the president of Sony says. I'm just talking out my ass and just going to, you know, go back to my office and do whatever, you know, I'm supposed to do. So like, I think if there's a label that's like, I think if there's a label that needs a, you know, a Winston Wolf type situation, like shit, we need to get underground or like, you know, underground, but mainstream, we need someone like myself. I don't, I, I really don't know because I, I thought I would want to get back in the music industry, but I'm, I'm okay being an artist. I think, I think I'm just, it's those rules again. Like, Oh, you, you have to do it this way. You have to do it that way. And I'm like, I don't want to do it anyway. I want to do it my way. And I've just been doing, doing it my way since, since I was born pretty much, you know? So like, it's, if you need me, and you're going to listen because I try to manage bands and stuff. And I'm like, look, look this, is, this is how it's going to go. And, of course, they don't listen. And then they break up. And I'm like, hey, what are you going to do? You know, like, oh, I should listen. You know, like, it's not my fault. You know, like, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be fine. But you guys have broken up now. <laughs> you know, you should have listened. At least take some sage into the words I told you, you know. So where, where you're at right now is a place where you have – a complete session of your house that's just dedicated to art and uh you had surprised myself with a portion <laughs> of my dog which is like oh the coolest. yeah you did my dog you gave me another painting before him but like the dog to me was like just such a shock because i'd seen on your social media all the pet pictures and whatnot my question to you is when you're doing art are you ever driven by other pieces that influence you and if so what is your art influences now and have they changed vastly since when you first started doing art so when i started art it was mainly comics you know jack kirby stuff you know like just avengers superman justice league kind of stuff running the mill mainstream superheroes and then you know i grew into more of the uh gossier superheroes like sandman and stuff the darker stuff you know and then, you know, once I stopped buying comics, I just I had to go on dates. I was, you know, go to museums and like, oh, Picasso. I really relate to Picasso. I don't know why. It's just some organized confusion there, but it's balanced and it's attractive enough. I, I just want to look at it all the time. Um, so Picasso is definitely an influence. Graffiti is definitely the biggest influence in my life. Just growing up on the J train going through Brooklyn, going through Jamaica and seeing graffiti on the rooftops and everywhere, you know, since I was a little kid. Um, a lot of, a lot of the street art is cool, but I, I definitely 
I don't really, I don't know. I don't want to be a street artist. I just want to be, I just figure I'm an artist. And I, and my current stuff right now, I'm just free right now. Like this pandemic is just setting me free to let me just be honest with myself because that's what I think everyone is doing right now is being honest with themselves. Like what's going on? What's going to happen? What do I do next? You know, like I need to figure this out right now or I'm ready to adapt with what I have to adapt to what's going on. So that's what I'm doing right now. And this, and it feels so good. It feels, there's no pressure. Like I just feel free for once, you know, like a lot of people want to be the Jake Bannon. They want to be this person. They want to be Aaron Turner. They want to be this person. Like you gotta, you gotta be yourself first. And I'm finally being myself first because I have, I have no, there's no rules this year, you know, and I'm not abiding by any of them. You know, I don't care what my dad tells me to do or not. <laughs> so like, it's one of those, it's one of those things. Why don't you roll and, into giving me a lowdown on how the COVID has specifically affected not only your daily life, but how you uh, went about continuing art and everything that's going on right now. So, like, once my son was born, I was stay-at-home dad. I couldn't get into the studio. I was, he was, you know, it would be either too cold, too hot to bring him outside, so I'd be in here. And then once my wife got home, I would go out in the studio and try to, like, figure out a painting or something. But it was just – the time wasn't there, you know? And before that, I had all the time in the world. Like, I'd just sit in here and paint and whatever. But now, like, I'm a dad. i got to pay attention to Killian, you know? And, and it, it actually taught me patience in a way because it's like, if I, I could start a painting and I don't have to like sit there and rush and like agonize over it and ruin it completely and paint over it. I can like paint something, start it. Oh, I got it. Like me and Kelly are going to take a walk. Oh, I got to change the diaper. I got to do this. I could be patient about it and come back to it and then be stronger this next layer on, onto it. So that worked, and and then, you know, once COVID hit, my wife was like, I'm going to be home, because she'd be, you know, two hours a day driving back and forth home, and not, I'm sorry, an hour each way, you know, from Seattle to Tacoma, and I, you know, like, I'm, it's great, I can come out here whenever I want, she's inside the Killian, you know, like, I can dip out of here for an hour or two, she doesn't have a meeting, she has a little bit of work to do or whatever. And so, yeah, so like I, I'm like, okay, I have this more, I have freedom now, you know, I have freedom to come here and actually work on something and just, you know, enjoy the time that I had and I can go back inside and go back to reality and be a dad again. And I can, all right, I need a break and Carrie can handle it or vice versa, you know, like she wants to go to the store. She's, she wants to take a drive. She could just so like it's working out really well, and I hope she never goes back to work <laughs> again. He just works at home, but like, um, you know, my son's going to be three in January. So like, hopefully, if this is over, he's going to go to a daycare type situation once if everything's fixed in the world. Hopefully, knock on wood, whatever, and it's going to give me even more time to do stuff. Uh, so like, I think I just you just you just need to put in the work and you need to be patient. And when your time is actually like 
ready to go. Like, okay, you want to do this? Here you go. Here's your time. Go do it. Okay, cool. I worked, you know, two years to get at this point. I better make sure that I'm producing something great. So, and somehow like this is just let me be that person, you know? So I think it's just the freedom with my wife being at home, like that safety net where like, I couldn't really get in a, like a painting for three hours because, okay, where did Killian walk off to? Did he walk into the street? Like, where is he? Is he like, oh my God, I lost my son. You know, like, oh my God. So like, it's that where like, I know he's safe. My wife is working. Everything's cool. Who's She's texting me right now. Uh, that's actually so, a good place to be at. If, yeah. If that's the, if the, if the world is falling away. And then I guess I should ask you the question of, because you said, and, earlier that whenever art is your focus it's because music isn't your life while you're creating art is music even in the in the process or is it just like a background and actually just answer that and then i'll ask you my final question um oh yeah i still listen to music i've been finding some new bands that i should have been listening to before but now this is probably the point where i should be listening to them like i've been into desk grips and Aphex Twin and all this kind of like this mood music because there's so much negative going on in the world. I don't want to hear about like the pain and hard oh, this and the hard life and hard knocks. And I'm like, I'm going through it already. I just need to, I need to escape to somewhere else right now. I'm, I'm living. We're all living it right now. But uh, I'll listen to a new hardcore record, a new metal record that comes out. I'm still involved in music. You know, I'm still a fan. And that's the thing too. When I stopped doing shows I somehow stopped being a fan and I stopped buying music and I stopped going to shows I just was just I think I was just more mad at myself I don't know it was just this weird like six month period I just painted and just didn't listen to anything it was just quiet and then you know and then now it's just like oh I'm buying vinyl again I'm buying music I want to go to I wish I could go to shows now. Um, but I've been going to sh like more shows often, you know. Maybe I'll do a show here and there when the new world happens. Who knows? You know, all bets are off this year or next year. So um, it, I just keep it open, you know. Like I'm never, I'm never not a fan of music. Uh, music is never, never going away in my life. It, it's always going to be in my veins and my heart, oh. so – it sounds like it's still involved in the formation of your art, and that's always a, important. I will ask one more question and yes. leave you to your process and your beautiful son and awesome wife. <laughs> Is there a regret about a show that you didn't get to book or a mistake that you may have made, which then down the line prevented you from booking a show? And is there like that moment where you like wake up and go, God damn it, I should have did this instead? involving a show or something else okay so there's two instances and i pretty much like i pretty much went after all the shows that i've always wanted to do i think the last eight months in new york city i just did my bucket list kind of shows i did three rorschach shows i did a kiss a goodbye show i did you know old man gloom show i did all pig show i did all these like banger shows and i'm kind of like i'm still on top you know like i went out on top and just didn't have any like bad blood with anyone. Um, so there's no regrets there, like leaving it, you know, the way it was. Of course, the unbroken show, I mean, that's 
one like that's top one show of my whole like booking career. Um, and then the regret, I don't know. I feel like, you know, I got offered to do that band Dragon Force when they were like super huge and like, oh man, the guitarist just flips. And like, I don't think you could do a flip at CDs. I can't book them here, you know? And the guarantee is a thousand dollars. Who has a thousand dollars, you know? Like at that point. And then they played a sold out show at Limelight and stuff. And you're like, oh, could have been at CDs. And I'm like, eh, what are you going to do? You know, like, and then, um, I don't think I should have gotten involved in Furnace Fest in 2003. Um, the guy, Shannon, the promoter, not Chad Johnson, not him, but the promoter, uh, Shannon. You know he, what? Let's, let's lay that out right. Because okay. I had thought about asking that question. And I think because I was really so into the rich story, um, we'll and go support. Well, it, it, and, it, and, it, and it plays in parallel to what we were talking about with the Hellfest stuff. So once again, in 2003, there's a big fest in Alabama, and Rich Hall is hired as the Winston Wolf to pull down to Alabama and hold it down. And once again, ding, 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 ding. <laughs> once again, Rich Hall, what went down? So the blackout happened on the East Coast, and I was in Atlanta when it happened. I was going to date in 2003, but my whole buddy list just disappeared. And I'm like, what's going on? And I couldn't get in touch with my mom or my dad at work. And I'm like, oh, something's weird. And then like where I was staying at, like saw the news and was like, oh, the East Coast is blacked out. And I'm like, I hope it doesn't affect the fest. And it did. Um, so it was just chaos again. Chaos. And, and I was in Birmingham, Alabama trying to fix it all. And then... Um, uh, the promoter Shannon was a cool dude, but he just didn't know what was going on. And I guess he had a book, flights all over, rebook, all this kind of stuff, cancel stuff, all this, whatever. And then, you know, like he was in for a lot of money that he didn't have. And at the end of the fest, it was the supervillain, me. I had to get paid before he had to deal with any of this because... I'm not leaving, you know, Alabama without getting paid. You know, like I just ran your whole fest the whole weekend for you, you know, like no way. So basically, like, you know, he owed Hatebreed money. He owed Taking Back Sunday money. He owed Andrew WK money. He owed all this money to people. And don't vouch for anyone. <laughs> just don't vouch for anyone with that kind of money on the line. Wait, all right. So – so basically, the, I, I don't know. I, I know what it is. I remember you telling up. me this. So this guy is losing his ass in a lot of ways, and it's as Two a promoter. Asses. As a as a promoter, it's never one to glorify or put a victory up when you're talking about someone losing money on a show. Right. But what you're explaining. You help them out. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to yeah. put put into understanding for people who. Me and you are talking like friends, so we kind of get the parameters, but someone listening yeah. may not get the, in, the, the into it. So Rich is here to settle and say to the bands, listen, man, we're going to make it right. He's going to get this together. And then he doesn't, and you aren't getting shows because this guy owes untold thousands of dollars to promoters or booking agents, rather, who you have good relations with because you vouch for them. And then 
You can explain yeah. the rest. You can explain the rest. He basically owed like fifty grand, like altogether. Um, and call all the booking agents. He'll get it to you. He'll get it to you. I don't know when, but he'll get it to you. He swears by it. You know, three months, and I'm booking shows, and like, there's nothing coming my way. And I'm like, what the deal? What's the deal? And like, call up Jeremy from the agency group. Hey, man, like, why didn't I get this show? Like, there's a show I kind of usually get. And I was like, well, your friend never paid me still. And I'm like, it's been six months. Like, what are you talking about? And like, yeah. I'm like, well, I don't know what to do. I, I can't vouch for him anymore. I don't like, I got to get these shows. This is my livelihood at this point. Um, and then... I guess the story goes like this guy Shannon he had to like get money from his grand his grandparents had to like put up their house to pay this debt for him. And it was I was like, whoa, that's fucking nuts. <laughs> you know? And then all of a sudden I started getting shows again. So I guess the debt was paid. So never vouch for anyone when it's upward of fifty well, ten dollars, you know? Just don't vouch for them. Just if you have the ten dollars, just pay him this Give it to him. But if you just if he's in the hot water, let him boil. Sorry, that's the super villain again coming out. But let him oh, boil. I, you know? I don't know if it's super villain. I think that you and I have done enough towards saying to someone, no, listen, this guy's good. Don't worry. And then when shit hits the fan, I had it happen a couple of times when I would say, hey, this guy's going to be good. He's going to go with you. And then I've gotten to 2 a.m. Hey, your buddy fucked me. Yeah, and I didn't get the money I wanted, and and most of the times I sent them the money because I look at it as like, look, I'll take care of the money, and it is what it is. I don't want you to not value my word on things, and basically, I I I'm actually I'm I actually wasn't looking for that answer from you, but because we're friends and you told me this, I was aware of the situation, mm-hmm. but it what you highlighted really clearly is for young promoters and band people is like. Your word goes a long way, and the vital relationships that we make within this hardcore scene are going to be the basis of a lot of decisions that other people make. Well, how do you know this guy? Oh, well, you know, this person, this person worked with them, and I think it all ties back into everything you did. Like, because you always did right by people, whether it was when you were under Tyler, and then when you were working on your own, and then with the different labels and all the different stuff, you always managed to make the deal and come up on your word. So I can see how doing these things and put your neck out there and then getting told, Hey, listen, he didn't pay. You don't get nothing. I could see how that can come into play. And, and uh, maybe that's the birth of the supervillain part of me, but you know, you learn, you learn these lessons, you know, like you, um, the whole, my whole experience at CBGB's, I rather, I probably wouldn't have, probably spend $75,000 from school if I knew I had a job at CBGB's waiting for me if I did that a little bit earlier in life. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know. I just I just feel like you just, you learn, you write it down, and you make sure that never happens again. Just because, because it does affect you. I didn't know it was going to affect me like that. You know, and then like, I just gave him my word. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm not going to do that ever again. <laughs> Which I probably... You know, I vouched for some people, but I made sure they're at least, you know, good for it, you know, before going into it. Um, I didn't really know this guy, Shannon. He just flew me down to Alabama to do this, to run his fest. I'm like, all right, cool. You know, <laughs> like, all right, you cool with me, you know. But 
yeah, you just, you, you learn real quick of doing shows, just be involved. You know, you, you either, like I said before, you either be in the corner, you, you overlook the situation or you problem solve the situation. Don't be the problem <laughs> or don't make it a problem, you know, or don't make it even a bigger problem, you know? So, and again, you know, go back to Castle Heights. Hey, it's out of my hands. If you want to hate me, right, then I don't give a fuck. Then you hate me. I'm not going to go to your, I'm not going to, you know, I don't care. You know, dude, I don't care where this dude is now. Like, he's still, I'm still probably getting fucked over, not getting some shows because of him, because someone has a vendetta out on all of us or whatever. I don't, whatever, you know? Let me ask you, uh, I know I said it was our last, but. Sure. The three bands that you're the most happy you worked with, and then we'll call it a wrap. Ooh. Like the three bands of like, you want to do a show and they'd be like, yes. Just the three bands that you touched on in your career and whether you booked a show with them or you went deeper and toured with them. But what three bands do you think had the most impact looking back in all this time that we're talking like now? Holy shit, it's been 26 years of you since you know, you started yeah. till right now. Like, what do you think the top three that have the most impact and you're most happy you worked with? I think ISIS. I'm glad I like, I knew them more as people than the, just the band. You know what I mean? I just knew Aaron, just not as Hydrahead, just as Aaron, you know? Um, and I always, always had a great time with them. I always had fun touring and just, even just going to Boston, hanging out with them. Um, Boys in the Well, when they were younger, like they were a lot of fun and they were always loyal and stuff. Uh, um, and then the bot, I'll say botch because you know, like Dave actually like lives three miles away and like we're pretty tight, like and we weren't, we were, you know, back then, but we're real like brotherly tight now and stuff like that. You know, like it's Killian's Uncle Dave, you know, so like. I think I'm glad I got exposed to those bands real quick. And like, I'm glad those friendships last. Some of them have lasted you know, up until this point. So I'm glad to be involved in this scene where I can, not that someone's related to me, but someone I've been through the trenches with, you know, I can call him uncle. Like I can killing call you uncle Joe and like, there'll be no like why, you know, <laughs> just, just because it's, you know, it is, it is what it is. So, I'm just also in, indebted that like someone gave me a chance to do it and they liked the product I gave, I gave them, you know, like it's like hanging a piece of art on the wall and four people like it. And one people, you know, a person buys it like, man, that's, oh man, that's more than I expected. I'm, I just, again, you know, at that point I just wanted to make money for a sandwich and a cab ride home, you know, like cool. Like, well, now hmm. you're making money. And put it towards your son and your wife. Duplos. Duplos, for real. Uh, dude, way better than stepping on the small Legos. Oh, my so, God. <laughs> yeah. If someone were interested in looking at your art or interacting with you and maybe a younger promoter or someone from another podcast wants to pick your brain further, how would you like them to try to contact you? Oh, um, through Instagram would be better. Um, it's what is your handle? At 
Rich, R-I-C-H underscore H-A-L-L. Um, and then like my Facebook is just Rich the same way. Uh, but yeah, um, or they can uh, hit me up, 1000knives at N-E dot C-O-M. You just straight up email me, you know? So yeah, I'm pretty, I'm out there. I'm out there in the, on the internet. So I, you're on the yeah. webs. You've been on the I'm webs not, quite I'm, a bit. I'm, I'm not hard to find, you know? You're pre, you're pre-web, but you're also on the web. I'm Listen, man, web. I mean, once again, I, as this thing continues for me and working out the kinks and doing the podcast stuff, it's stories like yours and it's touching back on history from hardcore and just seeing another person inside the engine and in the background of a great time in a certain place in hardcore. And I just really appreciate you taking the time and sharing stories and just taking it back there. And I said it before, we'll be getting Tyler King on here and I'll definitely make sure that you have some certain questions to ask him to return oh, yeah. the favor. <laughs> oh yeah. And um if you wanna leave me with you wanna leave me and those listening with anything, now's the time. Otherwise just thank you for your many years of friendship and your annual insight support and minding the chaos that I put in front of you and poor Greg Daly. Well, I appreciate the love and respect you've given me over the years. If not working together from afar, from where we both lived or where we were at our both point of times, you know, and we didn't clash like usually some people would have. Um, but yeah, you know, I definitely appreciate you. I love you what you do for me. I love and respect you. And I will go in, I would vouch for you. You would be the only one I would vouch for, if anything, because I know that, you have the money that somewhere. That in itself is an honor, man, and I really appreciate <laughs> you saying that. I know you have the money somewhere, but, you know, it's in the banana stand or something, but I know you got it. You're good for it. But, uh, no, Joe, seriously, thank you so much, and I appreciate it. And if anyone, I mean, I'm an open book, and I'm out there on the internet. If anyone just wants to hit me up and, like, I get a lot of people who are like, I went to this weird sh- Here's this sh- random show in '97. You were so cool to me. I'm like, whoa, cool. <laughs> you know, I'm glad it worked out for both of us. You know, but if anyone just wants to reach out and say, hey, you know, drop me a memory or something like that, they know where to find me on the internet. And, or if someone wants to hit me up on a pod, tell more stories or some more insight, I'm more, I'm more than available. All right, folks. You want some awesome artwork? At Rich underscore Hall. Or 1000 knives at me.com. Rich Hall. Be, I gotta say one more thing. I gotta yeah. say, I gotta interrupt. It could, it, you could see 1000 knives again next year. I don't know. It could be, I don't know what, in what format. We, we'll I see. think hard, I think hardcore and metalcore and the last 20 years has felt your impact. So if you can get back <laughs> in any way, we would all be better off for it. And that's a great way to end it. Thank you All right, very dude. much, Rich. I love you, Joe. Love you, man. Well, I really hope that some of you who have not heard these stories have learned something. And for those of you who were there at the time, can kind of reminisce on some of the good old days. Rich and I have a great relationship, and this one was a little more casual, but yet still really informative. And again, the ties between his childhood upbringing and art and music constantly come back to his story and 
just being the kind of person that he is just really shows you that you can decide where and how you want to do things and you have a bigger impact on your own destiny than you may feel. If you would like to help this podcast, the smartest thing to do is to subscribe to whichever service that you're using. We're on all the major ones, Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, quite a few others as well. In the Apple Medium comments, ratings of five stars are always helpful as it puts us further up in the rankings, or so I'm told. We are always going to be listed and available on our .com, T-I-H-C podcast.com, and T-I-H-E, the hardcore H-C podcast.com as well. And we will continue to release these weekly. The support, the comments, the DMs have really been a motivation factor for me. As I'm coming home from work and I'm beat and I'm tired and I read somebody who I haven't heard from in 20 years or I've never met before and they just have some good insight and some good criticism. I really appreciate you reaching out and saying, hey, you know, I heard this. You should try to do this instead. And all that goes in. I read everything, even if I do not have time to reply to everything. If you want to follow us on social media, This Is Hardcore is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can find me at Joe Hardcore on Twitter and Instagram. And you can have fun finding me on Facebook. Thank you again. And can't wait to have you guys listen in next week for our next awesome guest. Thank you so much.